Chords of Pain. This program deals with devil worship and satanic beliefs. It contains explicit scenes and descriptions of violent crimes and rituals. Americans are asking, who attacked our country? start to see Phil Ox start to go in some like new creative directions and I think they they do kind of foreshadow what would become kind of his full psychotic break later in mm-hmm. the 70s yeah like one of the emblematic moments in his career is uh, of, of this shift is his album greatest hits which is not actually yeah a greatest hits album um mm-hmm. 
but it does feature him wearing this kind of like gold country suit, very much like Elvis, and like playing electric guitar for the first time. Yeah. Um, the other the other thing that happened after Chicago '68 is he moves to Los Angeles, and you know basically decides to, you know maybe, the new path of his, I don't know the new direction of his career might be out in sunny California, but. It's not really clear. I didn't really see a lot of evidence that even though he knew a lot of people in the Laurel Canyon scene and probably knew people even in the sort of nascent kind of troubadour country rock scene that would sort of coalesce around David Geffen. Mm -hmm. Despite you would think he would be more plugged into this, but it doesn't seem maybe he was more. I know he like he started drinking a lot also around this time. So, by all accounts, he was, like, a less reliable and not as fun person to be around when we he would go on benders. I think he got in a pretty bad car crash in L.A. Uh, during this point. But he basically, he decides to pivot in, like, now, now that they're in the age of Nixon, he decides he needs to take a new approach to, like, political music. And as we mentioned earlier, he decides that what's really needed right now is not like straight up folk like protest songs because that's dead that's not connecting <laughs> with anybody yes. anymore he needs to embody a kind of all like very go full caleb moppin and go like full americana and embrace his childhood hero elvis presley and i think in his words like turn elvis presley into che guevara yeah somehow or pu- yeah put Che Guevara's ideas into uh, Elvis Presley's mind because like if you know if you had the fame of Elvis and like the ability of Elvis to reach people then and the ideas of Che which kind of Che also was able to reach people so I don't really know but I guess Americans you know Americans Americans don't like Che right yeah and I guess yeah I guess so I guess there was a literal sense because Elvis was still alive at that point like he right he actually tried to to get him to it was kind of like that episode of vinyl (laughs) (laughs) yeah I know I remember that that, (laughs) Richie Finestra tries to get Elvis to record an album with like the nasty bits or whatever yeah Yeah, Um, the nasty bits yeah (laughs) oh that shows um (laughs) the dumbest but then the evil colonel colonel Tom Parker comes in his Mm. MK handler and is like no you yeah, know, it's like Elvis, you could be a yeah. rockabilly punk star. Yeah. Oh, uh, if only. Um, so alas. But yeah, so it was kind of the same thing where Phil Oaks was like, I, you know, you should record my songs or something, you know, and and become the Elvis that we need right now. Yeah, exactly. So I guess uh, he must have just never gotten in touch with Elvis. Like, I don't know, that part of the plan never seemed to really materialize. Yeah. But he did sort of impersonate Elvis. And I mean, it's interesting when you listen to the album, because I, I looked it up first before I had kind of read about it. And I actually was even psyoped for a second into thinking it really was a greatest hits album. But uh, like it, I looked at the guy on the cover and I'm like, that's not Phil Oaks. That's not Phil Oaks. And then I, I really, oh, no, it actually, well, <laughs> it's one of his personalities, mm-hmm. you know, and it was like this total different pivot. But if you listen to it, it's kind of like, oh, I can kind of hear a little bit of like Graham Parsons or like the Flying Burrito Brothers or some something along those lines that because there were bands that were kind of hippies that were kind of into folk music. And then they sort of embraced 
country music, but with a kind of hippie rock vibe to it. And that became very commercially and like critically successful in the Mm -hmm. 70s. And it feels like that is hypothetically a direction that Phil Oaks could have gone in. But like the way he went about it ended up making it all backfire on him in like a really messy way. And a big part of the promo was he was going to play Carnegie Hall under this kind of new persona. And like you said, he has kind of this obsession with like the big show that's going to like change everything. And he, you know, so he wore his gold. Similar to QAnon in a way where they're like, it's all a movie. He was all obsessed with like like a movie, like everything being a movie. And like his life was like an ARG or something. But yeah, yeah, I guess in the, in that era it was like a movie and he was the cowboy hero. Yeah. That, uh, was, and then in his mind, like Elvis Presley and like Che Guevara were kind of like blended together in an interesting, it, we talked in the Che episode about how uh, sort of like the iconography of him is kind of the overlap just aesthetically with looking like a hippie rock star, even though he was mm-hmm. something quite different than that, I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And yes. how, but like in the American mind, it, that's why like Che t-shirts get sold at Hot Topic alongside like t-shirts of Jim Morrison. Like in the right. kind of American, the young American mind, there's sort of no difference. They're both like rebels who like yeah. are symbols to like not listen to your parents. Like, right. you know, yes. it's like that's basically to, all it becomes. To, dis- to not be a hall monitor. Uh-huh. Yeah. So yeah. I think it's oh, it's almost like Phil Oaks was like identifying a kind of salient phenomenon, but he was sort of, I don't know, like deciding to believe in it and like ride the wave of it instead of like earlier being very critical of people in his own milieu of, you know, people being too liberal or being, you know, politically cowardly or uh, electricity being violent and like electric music yeah. being violent and, and stuff like that. Like he had yes. a lot of thoughts about stuff like that, but then he starts to adopt like around the time he gets in with the, the yippies and then 68 happens. And now he's kind of on this like very like absurdist kick. So he plays at Carnegie hall in his gold lame suit, you know, basically just like Elvis. Let's see. It just says here on Wikipedia that during his show, which was recorded to be released as a live album, Oakes told the audience a story explaining his choice to wear the suit. He told them he had died in Chicago in reference to the violence he witnessed during the protests at the DNC. He said God gave him a chance to come back to Earth as anyone he wanted, and Oakes chose Presley. Right, he added that yes. if there was any hope for America, it, quote, relies on getting Elvis Presley to become Che Guevara. So, yeah, it's like, th- there you go with, like, also a premonition of, like, Phil Oakes died like announcing that, which is, yes. is this where his personality B personality a wall, like starts to crack a little bit, you know? Yeah. It, it, like starts it's, to malfunction yeah, a little remember, bit. Like, like, yeah. in that documentary in, in the chords of freedom that does, uh, you know, they, I guess they probably reenact that moment where he's like on stage yeah. and he's saying Phil Oaks. And I saw God and God said to me like, yeah, was it, I don't know. Maybe it was, uh, like, Maybe it was his handlers. They took him to a warehouse and they like shined a light in his face. And uh, no, but yeah. Yeah. He, uh, he, he got booed the first time. Like everybody, he just, he was playing this like very classic, like he was playing Buddy Holly. And he also did, he did a cover of Merle Haggard's Oki from Muskogee. We don't smoke marijuana in Muskogee. We don't take our trips on LSD. 
funny considering like he's Phil Oaks you know so I don't yeah. know if I mean other people have told me that that Merle Haggard song Oki from Muskogee which is like a very celebratory kind of right wing like yeah silent majority kind of anthem you know first line that we don't smoke marijuana in the school we don't <laughs> take no trips on LSD yeah, yeah, no, it's like, it, but it's almost like so corny. Like he's like, and the kids still respect the college dean. <laughs> you know? It's like, yeah, right. Uh, it, it, it's it's very like like patriotic, like kind of populist, <laughs> you know, country boy. And so like Phil Oaks uh, yeah, did like a live cover no of this. cards down on Main Street, but we yeah. love living right and being free. Yeah, so I mean, you could see it from like a sarcastic kind of thing. <laughs> you know like but i don't know how sarcastic it was like a lot of people were that a lot of people were saying like you know like play the old stuff like why aren't you playing like your folk songs like what the fuck like and it, it's interesting because like you know dylan also went electric and then started doing like electric versions of his folk songs and people mostly loved it but mm. like phil oaks decided to do it in this very weird like like almost like grading way uh to like really alienating way yeah but then you know i guess he came back for a second night and he said to all the people that were angry at him he said well come back again and i'll put on a second show for free and then you guys can tell me how you really feel about it and apparently like the second show was better and more people liked it but then they cut the power off in the middle of it because like it went too long Hmm. So okay. I guess there was also like a bomb threat initially huh. that that cut the first one short. Yeah, it was when, very like when exactly was this? It was nineteen sixty. Nineteen seventy. Oh, nineteen seventy. Okay, that's yeah. Like, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, very weird. I wonder why uh, there was a bomb threat. I wonder why people were. You know, I guess I don't know. Yeah, was there any like reason, like motivation? Just like were they angry at him, or were they upset about something else? Wikipedia says the live album comprised songs recorded at the infamous gold suited bomb threat shortened first show at Carnegie Hall. So I guess on the first night. Okay, yeah, here here's what happened. Yeah, before 
he started playing his covers. Some fans loved it, but some attendees of the show were unhappy with the music he was playing, wanting only to hear old Oaks. Before he had a chance to convince them, the concert was cut short by a telephone bomb threat. Some angry friends who fans who had paid for a full concert confronted Phil at dinner between shows. He took their names, promising to get them into the second show for free, but the box office was locked, and Oaks smashed the glass, severely cutting his thumb. He appeared on stage at the second show with a bandaged hand, telling the audience the story. Breaking into the lockbox was the last straw. While they let Oaks perform the second show, he was banned immediately afterwards from performing again at the venue. So, yeah, I forgot about that, too. He, like, punched through the glass and, like, cut his hand and was, like, bleeding everywhere. I think he was pretty drunk. Right, um, the night of the cut thumb. That was yes, what it was called. The, yeah. the night of the cut thumb. So, yeah. you know, he did that, and I guess, you know, it wasn't exactly, like, great for his career. And then, I don't know, let me see if he came out. I think that was basically, his greatest hits, kind of ironically, was, like, his last real album that he released. And then, he, because he, after that, he decided to travel the world for a few years, which he did, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, he got involved. And he did concerts, like, abroad, right? Like He, kind he of, did concerts you know. abroad. And, yeah. uh, oh, my God, there's this cringy moment because he, he, you know, he does go to, go to Africa. And one of these, like, old friends of his is, like, uh, you know, basically, I think he was, I don't know if it was in Tanzania or maybe Kenya or somewhere where Phil Oaks, like, called up Electra and was, like, I'm I'm gonna record a record here. Like, uh, wire me money so I can like pay for a studio. And then he got all these African musicians in to do, I guess, like a kind of Afrobeat inspired, you know, record or something like that. Uh, and the guy was so proud, and he's like, like nobody ever gives him credit, but like years before anybody else, Phil Oaks had discovered world music. Wow! <laughs> like, I thought he was up. gonna say that like, he invented rap Afro- or something. Like, <laughs> like, I thought he was at least gonna say like Phil Oaks like discovered like Afrobeat or something, but he just calls it world music. <laughs> That's like, really Fuck you. Oh my like, god! Oh my god! Ooh, world music, cool. Yeah. Like, Something that literally isn't just a name that is used to sell music from other places in the United States. You can't discover world music. Like, anyway. exactly. uh, Whatever. Uh, It can't be Uh, African music or Tanzanian. But anyways. I mean, this is uh, also when he he went to Chile, right? That was kind of one of his last big hurrahs was he went down to Chile and uh, Chile and he one thing was he he befriended Victor Hara, who is a really good... I'd like to read more on him one day. Like, I've listened to some of his stuff, and he's, like, fantastic. He was considered kind of the Bob Dylan of Chile and mm-hmm. was very left-wing right, and yeah. very popular. And he he struck up a friendship with Phil Oaks, and I, I guess they, they wrote letters to each other and, like, you know, basically uh, stayed in touch. And I think he also, I think he was able to meet Salvador Allende and definitely was hanging out with people that were like part of Allende's party and were, you know, these Chilean socialists that had won the election. And he was like very, very pro Allende. Like he loved what was going on in Chile. And he talked about how exciting it was. He would like go on like monologues to like everybody he'd come across about how beautiful and amazing and, you know, like a, like a like a good sock dem. He'd always, you know, like they have this Marxist government that was democratically elected, you know, and like, uh, <laughs> you know, so that was like, of course, the height of beauty was like a peaceful, democratic, like Marxist sort of like, you know, revolution mm-hmm. by the ballot box. He was very into that. But then, of course, on the one of one 
not the original 9-11, but one of the early 9-11s uh, in 1973, you know, yeah. Pinochet, with the support of the U.S., takes over the government and kills, uh, Ayanda ends up dying, and then Victor Hara, Phil Oaks's new friend, um, is taken to Santiago Stadium and is tortured and shot uh, along with thousands of other people. And I guess this was another like gut punch moment for him that really made him like spiral into more alcoholism, more pills, um, and just like living a really seedy, transient existence, like globe trotting and stuff. Uh, he did go back to New York after Ayende died, and he hosted this big benefit concert that he, I guess, convinced Bob Dylan to play at which was, I guess, made it sell out. I think it wasn't in Madison Square Garden. I'm not sure. But, oh, I was going to say, I mean, it's worth noting that, like, officially, I mean, we don't really know. I mean, either way, like, it's uh, Pinochet and, by extension, like, the United States' fault uh, for, uh, you know, carrying out the coup of Allende. But officially, you know, he committed suicide, which I feel yes. like was maybe a factor or of in Phil Oak's own thought process like around. Oh, I see. I see. Like it was more yeah, depressing that he yeah. killed himself out of like despair basically. Yeah. yeah. Maybe like, you know, I mean, I think uh, people maybe fairly that, like, helped the seed assuming that, you know, again, maybe we'll open the issue of whether he really killed himself. But I mean, assuming that he did, uh, maybe that's like part of what planted the seed. Uh, Cause it was only a few years later that he, he would hang himself. Phil that up, is but, possible. That is possible. Yeah. But, like, know, he has I'm this concert, sure which is, yeah, yeah, like, it's kind of a success. I mean, it, it's for basically, like, Chilean refugees. And I guess he runs into Bob Dylan one night and then convinces him to, like, go back to his apartment with, like, a couple bottles of wine. And he launches into this, like, six-hour kind of, like, impassioned monologue about, like, the tragedy of Allende and the tragedy of Chile and, like, the entire history of the country and, like, U.S. imperialism and all these horrible things. He, like, reads, like, he, he reads Allende's, like, inauguration speech and everyone's, like, moved to tears and stuff. Mm -hmm. And they're just getting, like, shit-faced. And by the end of the night, he convinces Bob Dylan to play at this rally. So when the word gets out, Dylan's going to play. The place sells out. And But I guess they got so shit-faced, along with Dennis Hopper, <laughs> a little bit sus, like, before the show that afternoon, that once they did show up, they were, like, utterly just like wasted and like incoherent and especially Phil Oaks and you know they put on the show and it was good times and stuff but that was kind of like the last thing he did really in his life that was you know basically a you know big deal but I guess it was a big boost to him that like because he hadn't seen Bob Dylan in like 10 years and he was this big star now you know it felt mm -hmm. like uh it felt like maybe things were turning up for Phil but then, I think at the end of that year, something else happens to Phil. He's traveling around Africa, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. And then, one night, he's walking on the beach, and he gets attacked by a gang of thugs. And they almost beat him to death, right? They beat him brutally and yeah. strangle him and rob him. And yeah. he is able to basically survive, but... What his ends up happening is like, were like horribly damaged and he lost the top three notes in his vocal range. And he his did. voice, I guess, like even his speaking voice, I think, kind of changed a bit. 
It really did. It really did. Yeah. So, I, you know, yeah, it is kind I'm of I'm just looking at the section like, in the book right now to see yeah, if it's I kinda, can. It reminds me of that Batman movie where, uh, you know, the, the Dark Knight where Harvey Dent gets like, uh, you know, acid spilled on him or like his face burns off or something. And then he, oh, yeah. uh, you know, and that like shatters his mind and he like, you know, becomes a different person or like half a different he person or whatever, two-faced. you know. Yeah. He like, you know, develops maybe, an alter. Yeah. Because like he didn't sound the same anymore. Maybe that was part of the impetus that started to transform him into train. Um, yeah. yeah. Okay. So l- let's hear this. Yeah. Like uh, this is just a little section in the kind of official biography about his Africa adventures. Kind of interesting. So uh, Phil looked forward to his trip to Africa. Once again, his traveling companion would be David Ifshin, who had left the U.S. after the 1972 elections and settled onto a kibbutz in Israel. Phil and David had corresponded on an irregular basis. In one of his letters, Phil had proposed that he and Ifshin travel through eastern Africa together. Ifshin was all for it. According to the plan, they would tour parts of the continent separately and then meet on a designated date in Kenya. Phil's itinerary included visits to Ethiopia, Kenya, Tanzania, Malawi, and South Africa. The countries in Africa always seemed to be in a state of transition, and Phil was hopeful of seeing firsthand the kind of revolutionary spirit he had witnessed two years earlier in South America. He was especially interested in Idi Amin, whose iron reign in Uganda was being widely reported in newspapers all around the world. Phil desperately wanted to travel to Uganda, and with any luck, actually meet the dictator face to face. Hmm. Africa invigorated Phil. He loved much of the music he heard, and he was fascinated by the sound of the various languages and dialects. The people impressed him as being some of the most gentle souls he had ever encountered. In no time, he had met and befriended a number of native musicians, and in a rare seizure of inspiration, he decided to record a couple songs with them. He called Jerry Moss at A&M and asked him to set up studio arrangements in Nairobi. Phil hoped to deduct his travel expenses on his next year's income tax returns, and with this in mind, he scheduled a handful of concerts in different cities across Africa. In Dar es Salaam, he would be appearing as the headliner and a benefit for the Institute of Adult Education. He also booked performances at the University of Witwatersrand and at a hotel club in Johannesburg. Dar es Salaam proved to be his undoing. One evening, while walking alone on the beach, he was attacked by three men who jumped him from behind, strangling him and beating him to unconsciousness before robbing him and leaving him for dead. He was found early the next morning, still unconscious, and was taken to a nearby hospital. His vocal cords had been ruptured while he was being choked, and to Phil's horror, he could no longer sing the upper three or four notes in his vocal range. The sweet-sounding quality in his voice now sounded raspy and harsh, Doctors were guarded in their prognoses. His voice might return on its own in time, but he was warned not even so much as attempt to sing for the time being. Phil stayed in the hospital for several days, during which he replayed the mugging over and over in his head. He was certain that he had never seen his assailants before, but he found it difficult to believe that he was simply the victim of random violence. He was especially bothered by the fact that he had been strangled. The people attacking him could have easily incapacitated him and robbed him without choking him. Did they know he earned his living as a singer? Had they been hired by someone to strangle him? The more he considered it, the more convinced he became that the attack might not have been a random act. He had always feared that he would be killed on stage, perhaps by someone hired by the government to do the job. He never doubted that he was being watched by the FBI, just as he was certain that his international movement was being monitored, perhaps by the CIA. There were, of course, no definitive answers, only additional questions, including the big one that begged to be answered. How would all this affect his career? 
for the time being, there was no way of knowing. Damn. So, yeah. yeah. I guess they had both worked on... Uh, he did meet with David Ifshin after that. They had both worked on the McGovern campaign in 72 together. David Ifshin, I guess, was shocked to see how badly Phil let himself go over the last year. I vividly remember waiting for him outdoors as his plane landed in Nairobi. He'd been strangled by muggers, and he was really out of it. He had deteriorated badly from our adventure in South America. Almost the first thing he said was, We're going to have to control the drinking. you got to help me stop on this trip. All I want is one beer a day. Well, compared to our prior drinking in South America and the U.S., one beer a day was like total abstinence. <laughs> wow. So I guess he did restrict his drinking. They kept driving around Africa after that. I guess, I don't know if they ever went to Uganda. It's weird that he focused in on Idi Amin of all people. Not like uh, like Sekou yeah. Toure or... Yeah, like Sekou Toure was still in power in the 70s. Like, why not go visit him? He was I like think a Idi Amin top... had a higher profile. Still. I guess he did. Yeah. He was very well known. But it wasn't he a U.S. ally in the 70s? Yeah, but I mean... In a kind of Saddam kind of way? Yeah. I don't know. Phil Oaks was like openly... Uh, at least openly didn't care about that. Yeah. So, but he did start to think after a while that the CIA had like targeted him to basically fuck his voice up. So he does come back to America. I think at some point he like moves back to New York. And then I guess he just deteriorates and deteriorates drinking like all the time totally fucked up and then this moment occurs uh i guess after the the summer solstice of official like appearance was where he said like i mean i know that he kind of uh maybe like in his gold suit appearance he sort of tested the waters of or was like playing around with similar ideas but like do we know when his first actual appearance was as john train like when he first said like i'm trained now 
Um, I don't know. Uh, I don't know exactly. Let me see. Oh, he did go to Uganda, but he did not get to be, meet Idi Amin. Yeah. Unfortunately. God, there's <laughs> yeah, so much. Yeah, he wrote the, like the some John very John weird. So it's much. like, it's amazing. Like listening to that, like uh, there's a, a, a crisper version of it that you can hear, but there um, in a, like in the, the version I first listened to, it was like kind of like a, the tape started to kind of unravel towards the end and like his voice sort of slowed down. I mean, he already was just like mumbling, like, you know, in like pretty much incoherently and like, you know, when you could understand him, what he was saying didn't, he's unintelligible most of the time. And when you could under, like, you know, when he was intelligible, he was still incoherent. Um, rambling. And, and yeah. Like free like associating talking about, a lot of yeah, the things. Like the mafia and, you know, he's talking a lot about, uh, Muhammad Ali and Sonny Liston, right? He wrote yeah. like uh, a ballad. It's interesting because Sonny Liston was also someone who sort of died under uh, obscure circumstances. Like there wasn't really an implication oh, of foul that. play, but you know they said it was like natural causes or whatever. But you know, sort of the suggestion was that he actually was on drugs, and and then he also kind of had that famous incident of taking the fall against Ali. So. You know, oh, that's saying, great. Like, yeah, maybe on purpose. Um, but I see. Okay, I, I, I did find it here. Well, yeah, his first appearance. In the book. Chapter 17, Train. Um, <laughs> yeah, because oh, like, okay. it was... Yeah, anyway, sorry. Yeah, he would always reference, like, Train to like, that. Train. train to that. Yeah. <laughs> train. train. Um, that, that, that's yeah. what Train's all about. Okay, so John Train appeared without warning in the early weeks of summer 1975, quickly asserting himself into the Greenwich Village scene like an unwanted stranger who refused to go away. For the next few months, he would anger, confuse, shock, sadden, or frighten nearly everyone crossing his path. With his huge pot belly, filthy clothing, confrontational <laughs> attitude, and arsenal of strange weapons, Train could not have been more different from the Phil Oaks of the 60s. Train was Mr. Hyde on the loose, a tortured, violent being incapable of freeing the Dr. Jekyll trapped inside. Train, who took his name from Phil Oakes's big screen heroes, John Ford and John Wayne, as well as from the poet William Butler Yeats, was a kind of cinematic character brought to life. Um, I'm going to put a okay. fact check, a uh, little mark on that for later, but yeah, uh, that is not also, where the like, fucking name John comes from. John Train rhymes with John Wayne, but like, there's nothing in there that suggests Train. Also, what about Butler? That's the thing that... like. Doesn't Butler's weird. I, I'm yeah. not. Maybe Butler did come from Yates, but I think. Oh yeah. Uh, but also, there's a much easier link. But we'll get to that in a second. The official biography does not uh, make this connection, uh, unfortunately. Right. Yeah. So he writes: In the past, Phil Oakes had often imagined himself to be a character in an epic motion picture. Train was the fantasy come true. He was a Wild West gunslinger in a postmodern apocalyptic world, a revolutionary without a country, a rebel without a cause. In an interview taped in Midsummer, Train explained his origins, quote, On the first day of summer 1975, Phil Oakes was murdered in the Chelsea Hotel by John Train, who is now speaking. I killed Phil Oakes. The reason I killed him was he was some kind of genius, but he drank too much and was becoming a boring old fart. For the good of society's public and secret, he needed to be gotten rid of. For all its bravado, the statement spoke volumes of what Phil Oakes had become, at least in the regions of his own mind. Phil had been suicidal, off and on, for years, yet for whatever reasons he had been unwilling or unable to actually take his own life. 
his, quote, murder at the hands of John Train was more than symbolic. It represented no less than a frantic attempt to put an end to a life that had lost its purpose and meaning. Phil had always possessed a high opinion, not only of his creative talent, but also of its impact on society. But his self-image had fallen substantially in recent years, as his drinking and lengthy, lengthy periods of inactivity drove him into deeper and deeper depression. Becoming a martyr at the hands of John Train assured Phil of the status of having a heroic figure in the minds of the public society that admired his activism and ended his harassment by the private societies, the FBI, CIA, Mafia, etc., that had wanted him silenced, or so Train hoped. He actually said public and secret societies, not public and private author, oh. but mm, doing a little cover work here, I yeah. see. Um, okay, so al- although Phil insisted that John Train was a separate entity, to the extent of his occasionally insisting that people refer to him as Train rather than as Phil, the character was, in fact, an open, honest representation of the defeated Phil Oakes. Phil had never been afraid of wearing his passions in public, and John Train became a penultimate manifestation. The world was witnessing in painful clarity the terrible price one human being would pay for caring too much. Train's emotional compass spun completely out of control with virtually no sense of direction. One minute, usually when he was in public, drinking at a local bar, he would be angry and confrontational, prepared to fight with anyone who dared disagree with him. Other times, he would be all but catatonic, sitting silently and listlessly in front of a television or movie screen, his eyes following the action, but the rest of him registering no response to what he saw. Phil Oakes had never been without comment on whatever he was watching. John Train displayed very little interest at all. uh, So Train's barroom escapades during the summer of 75 became the stuff of legend. Train would enter a village tavern or club, drink until he was slurring his words and could barely stand, and invariably he would pick a fight with someone around him. In the early days of the train manifestation, there was very little chance of this actually the train becoming train manifestation. <laughs> right? Yeah, um, uh, I guess there was. There's very little chance of this actually becoming physically violent. There was still too much Phil Oaks in him for that. But he would become so loud and overbearing that bartenders and owners would order him to leave. In time, the banishments from some of the bars became permanent. After being ejected from a bar, Train would wander around the streets of the village, occasionally trying to enter another establishment, but more often than not, retreating to a quiet place where he could either sleep off the drunk or sit silently with a friend. Train was anything but discriminating in choosing a place to sleep. Park benches or alleyways were as good as a warm bed. He would simply stagger off to a place where he could be alone and collapse, often after he had thrown up on himself or urinated in his pants. To Train, personal hygiene was a low priority. Yeah, so I guess one of his favorite companions at night was Meyer Vishner, a longtime political activist who had an apartment on McDougal Street. Vishner also suffered from bouts of acute depression, and on a typical night, the two would sit on Vishner's bed, silently watching television for hours on end. Vishner worked as a substitute DJ for WBA Radio in New York, and on one of the occasions when he and Train were sitting around and watching TV, he told Train that he had a tape he wanted him to hear. The recording, sent to WBAI by Sis Cunningham and Gordon Friesen featured a new singer-songwriter named Sammy Walker. Train came alive as soon as Vishner put the cassette into his tape recorder. Walker's voice and guitar sounded strikingly similar to the way Bob Dylan had sounded when he initially arrived in New York. Suddenly, Train wanted to know everything about this young new talent. So I guess, okay, so he, he like jumped to life when I guess he heard that. 
blah, blah, blah. I want to hear more about like what Train says about himself because this author is trying to avoid it. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I don't know what Sam, I don't know what the deal is with like Sammy Walker. He wanted to produce a record by Sammy Walker, I guess. And they were hanging out all the time, but he was still doing this as Train. Okay, so yeah, so they, they started, uh, he started hanging out with this young guy named Sammy Walker, going out and drinking, introducing him as his new big musical discovery. Um, Walker, shy by nature, not much of a drinker, liked Train and appreciated all he was trying to do for him, though he was hard-pressed to understand why the former Phil Oakes had adapted a new name and was acting the way he was. Train was terribly paranoid, especially when he was drunk, and he would constantly complain, always in the most general of terms, about how he was being pursued by the FBI and the Mafia. No one, least of all Sammy Walker, could convince him otherwise. So, yeah. See, he he was complaining about how he was, like, basically a targeted individual, right? Yeah. Like, but also, like, kind of by himself. And also, like, yeah, he really... In his final interview, he talked a lot about wanting Ramsey Clark to be president. He still yes. remained, like, obsessed with, like, presidential politics. And, like, you know, we're going to get this one guy in who's going to fix everything. Uh, it was kind of he was still wrapping like a SDS like strategy session kind of thing. Yeah, but it was, like, totally bog. I mean, Ramsey Clark popping up again. Right. Yeah. I mean, they they worked together in kind of the earlier time, like maybe in the, like 69, 70, 71 before he kind of went fully gone. But I mean, Ramsey Clark, he just he susses me out so much like the fact that everybody and kind of the organized left in America ended up trusting him. Like one of the weird things he says in that last interview is one of the things Train says. So, but there's three, three, three moves, one, two, three, to, to take America. One is Clark for president. That's, that's already established. Second, get rid of Wallace. We can do it by, by, just by one phone call. Yeah, one, 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 one television. You know, another. The, 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 the train makes a movie a day, right? A video movie a day, like tomorrow. The, the cattle fish movie, all these things I'm talking about. So, 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 train calls up Wallace. I mean, you know, or was it Train, trains people. Like, like, say, say the, the Louisville people call up the, 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 the. It's all done in a very gentlemanly fashion. You know, it's not. It's not. I mean, like, I'm rude with, with Connie like that, but that, that that's. He, he plays, he plays a rough game, so you play him that way. Now, now Wallace, believe it or not, is a gentleman. Ramsey Clark is certainly a gentleman. So, uh, but the way, but you know, the, the the whole trick about train is to be so fast and so quick and so smart and so right and so dead aim that that that, um, not, that, that bullets can't stop it. You know, uh, for example, the and then every move projects another move. So, so trains people and. Louisville, call up Wallace's people and say, look, we hereby challenge you at first privately, and if not, we'll give you one day to think about it. And if you say no, then we'll go public with it and, and kill Wallace by refusing. But Ramsey Clark, Clark says, forget the primaries, waste of time, waste of money, come right to the point. I will, de I will debate the following people, you know, and but, but the guy's the guy's answer is Wallace, Wallace is such a pushover. I mean, Wallace is totally corrupt. But uh, I lost my train of thought. I got I got now. I got a train to keep myself more logical and directed. Ramsey Clark's value is that he's, he's a, he, number one. He's an honest man. Number two, he's, he's a gentleman. Number three, uh, he, he he he's Lincoln. He, he really is Lincoln. He, he's he's gonna free the slaves. We're all slaves. It's it's a take take two. 
so so that's so 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 that's what so so as soon as that it, it gets known the train did that I mean destroyed Wallace one day I mean like, it's exactly it's, it's one two yes yes or no he says yes next day his tape is done third third day it's out the, the, the getting the highest rating of, of all time higher rating than Nixon, Nixon uh, and then it's real because think about it, Clark, Clark is the first guy that's been, that's been allowed to tell the truth the invisible government said all right you're the guy you tell the truth you can go to Hanoi you can go to Havana you can do this and that you know and, and speak your mind visit an American prisoner of war as the country's being bombed go on do it is like well Ramsey Clark like he he's government president because you know, the, the shadow government has decided that he is the one. He's the chosen one <laughs> who can speak his mind and go around. They, they've designated him as the one. And it's like, that's kind of true. In a, like, I suspect that's kind of true in a way. But like, yeah. you know what I mean? Like that Ramsey Clark. I mean, he was like LBJ's attorney general. He was attorney general when like Operation Chaos was basically launched. And like, and basically like Bobby Kennedy and Martin Luther King died and were assassinated. And but he never gets associated with that. He only gets associated with being like he represented Gaddafi, like he represented Slobodan Milosevic, like he represented all these like lefty civil rights, Saddam Hussein, Charles Taylor. I mean, like like anybody that had a beef with America. But, you know, he was the son of a Supreme Court justice. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, like it just it, it doesn't kind of fully add up i think there's even more such shit for that but like yeah i mean he spoke at like his memorial ramsey clark did i guess they were close but he was very convinced i guess ramsey clark was running for the senate around that time and mm. phil oaks was like very excited about that it was like his new mcgovern his new kennedy or whatever yeah so he was still kind of holding on to that but you know it also says here that uh, train was absolutely convinced he was being followed by someone hired to assassinate him and for protection against his enemies, he armed himself with a variety of weapons, including a hammer, knives, a broken-off shovel handle, a meat hook, or a lead pipe. Such weapons, however, brought him very little assurance. He saw the enemy on every street corner. He was afraid to leave a bar for fear of running into a government agency hitman. He hated to walk around alone, so he took to hanging out with people that he met on the street or in taverns. As far as Train's old friends were concerned, the new circle of friends represented nothing but trouble. When he was train, offered Larry Sloman, he was incredibly effusive. He had this grandiosity to him that was amazing. I remember him showing up at times with the most degenerate kind of street-level scuzz that you can imagine. These were people that he picked up along the way. I didn't know who these people were, added Carol Riolini, another longtime friend, who accused these new drinking buddies of attaching themselves to train because they enjoyed watching him get drunk and make a fool of himself. They were just crazies. They were mindless people who exploited him. So, yeah, I guess. But it's interesting. He had like this charisma as John Train, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. He wrote right. a very weird article like, you know, this was, I think, you know, he wasn't actually. And it's hard to say. And I think this was before he like fully morphed from the train. Like, I don't know, maybe he was like kind of in between states at this time. But, you know, this is in the L.A. Weekly News. And he published this in 1973 about Nixon. And he says, uh, it is becoming increasingly obvious that there is no possible way for Nixon to continue his charade as the president. Slowly but surely, the immensity of the corruption of Watergate, the illegal campaign, dirty tricks, the misuse of federal power, political use of the IRS, the deals with ITT and the large wheat handlers, the enemies list, the failure to release tapes, and the pure greed of $10 million spent on home improvements, Bulletproof swimming pools is seeping into the middle American mentality like a huge turd into a steamy swamp. 
McCord was the left jab and John Dean the right cross. Again, like all these like boxing fixations. He's Nixon talking about is John dead. Dean. He is uh, his former classmate. Yeah, he is no longer president. If the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor again, he would go on TV and call for support. The general reaction could well be, so what? It's been done before. America hasn't been much on morality these last 10 years, but they usually provide a respectable level of entertainment. It would be difficult for any playwright to beat the spectacle of this weasel trapped in the basement of his own ambition, squeaking desperately for help and support as his aides, guided solely by ambition, spend their time cutting each other's throats to save their own skins. The most likely way out is resignation, either voluntary or forced. I believe the decision that Nixon has to resign was made at least three months ago. I assume that, as usual, is a matter of capital and finance. America is in desperate trouble. The dollar is in grave danger, inflation is rampant, the scars of Indochina will take a long time to heal, and the government stands there paralyzed like, excuse the expression, a pitiful, helpless giant. Put yourself in their shoes, even if you can't do it by the vote, even if you can't do it by the vote, just fantasize. From the capitalist point of view, how can they best straighten out this mess? They must find a means to restore a measure of confidence in the federal government. The country demands nobility and leadership, and Nixon stands there as living proof that masturbation does, in fact, lead to insanity. <laughs> Nobody <laughs> wants to play poker with a guy who has been caught cheating. The needs of corporate America demand a switch from chaos to stability. My guess is that Nixon has been told that he has to leave by the powers that be. Agnew, though an effective temporary thug for Babbitt fundraising and bullying the media, doesn't have any of the real strength and character required for the hour. He is still the same political hack he was five years ago when Nixon picked him out of the Maryland gubernatorial gutter. So it is necessary to remove him first. Under the 25th Amendment to the Constitution, Section 3, wherever there is a vacancy in the office of the vice president, the president shall nominate a vice president who shall take office upon confirmation by a majority vote of both houses of Congress. It seems pretty obvious that the decision to expose Agnew's past corruptions was made by overzealous aides in the federal government, if not by Nixon himself. Agnew's press conference was an interesting study in psychology. You know, he's pretty much like right on the money. He, he was like a he's good fighter raised on easy opponents who suddenly and viciously got clobbered. His knees buckled, but he came back fighting gamely. However, the anger and hurt in his eyes betrayed the sudden knowledge that he not only had to fight in the press and Justice Department, but also the boys in his own corner. One of the few human moments in this network of bureaucratic lies. I assume he'll be out of the picture in a month or two. That clears the way for the mystery guest. Who could possibly restore at least a measure of confidence in this shabby atmosphere? The word around Washington was Nelson Rockefeller. Uh, wow. his, Interesting. He has his, uh, well, not well, like pretty yeah. almost accurate. Like He thought yeah. eventually what he came to, he said other possibilities are Ronald Reagan and Mark Hatfield. Uh, but then eventually he said it would be, or he thought it could possibly be Elliot Richardson. But of course, you know, that didn't, it was Gerald Ford. But other than that, he was correct. But it is interesting that he, uh, where he takes this is like kind of interesting because down the line, you know, a little bit later, he says, of course, Richardson may not be the choice, but I think this article reflects the basic thinking behind the real decision making process. Nixon's last destination was so boring and mindless. I can only surmise that it was merely an attempt to buy time before making a real move. There are several other possibilities. One is impeachment if he insists on being a spoil sport, leaving Carl Albert and the Congress with a caretaker government. We could have military rule, but the military is too unruly and their credibility has also been destroyed. Another is a convenient death, a plane crash, or the surprise return of a more effective viral pneumonia. Even if he managed to hang on, he would be totally impotent. He would have no power in Congress, reduced power in foreign affairs, and zero believability with the American public. He can't hide forever behind county fairs, Billy Graham, and the veterans of foreign wars. Besides, there are enough disgruntled people in the CIA and FBI who would leak their own information if he decided to say. 
Actually, I'm sure some of them are responsible for the awesome amount of disclosures already. If Nixon had an ounce of decency or a sense of honor, he would have resigned a long time ago, just on the level of suspicion or the involvement of his closest age, especially John Mitchell. If this were a parliamentary system, he would have been forced out long ago on a vote of confidence. But this is America, where show business and media hypnosis replace the law, and we seem forced into the role of an uninvolved and over-entertained audience. I suppose the final lesson of all this is that your character is your fate. Here is Nixon on election eve, looking his chops at the point of his greatest victory. He believes he is loved. He believes he has finally beaten John Kennedy. And then 25 years of lies, deceit, and hypocrisy come whipping around like a giant cosmic pie and fly splat into his jowly and corpse-like face. Maybe there is a God. I mean, pretty coherent overall. Yes. He, yeah, he even suggested that Nixon could potentially, you know, he says uh, he's allowed to retire to Costa Rica to write his last book, 6,000 Crises, before the inevitable suicide. (laughs) Um, once again, you know, kind of, yeah, attesting to this, uh, preoccupation he had with suicide. But I mean, since so many people are suicided in like this world that he was, uh, you know, interested in, it's not like a totally groundless preoccupation. Well, to support that a little bit, it says here in the train chapter that for all his reckless behavior, there were indications that train could control himself when he chose to do so. He remained calm and respectful when he was around older friends, such as Sis Cunningham and Gordon Friesen. Sis and Gordon's apartment became a refuge when Train felt threatened or needed a place to crash. One time, he knocked frantically at their door, obviously terrified out of his wits. Somebody's got to hide me, he told Sis and Gordon, because they're going to kill me. The assassins, he said, were waiting for him in the lobby of the apartment building. We tried to help him as much as we could, said Cunningham, who wound up putting Train up for a week on that particular occasion. We didn't know if he was fantasizing or something, but after he died and we were thinking this over, I believe it was true. We now know that he was under surveillance. The FBI reports showed that. He came here a lot, and he would talk to Gordon for hours. Sometimes he'd come here after sleeping in the park. He would be in terrible shape, all dirty, his hair matted, no socks, the tongues hanging out of his shoes. Gordon would tell him to take a shower. He would find him some clean clothes and some socks, and he would put him to bed. This went on time after time after time. Huh. You know, I mean, so they they thought that he actually was being like gang like gang stalked, maybe gaslit by yeah. agents of some kind. And I mean, they did I don't know if the entire Phil Oaks uh I think his FBI file was mostly released and it was about five hundred pages. So they definitely were tracking this guy throughout his entire life. And I'm sure that the CIA was probably tracking him when he traveled around the world. But I think those file, any files from the military or the CIA, I think are still, I don't know if anybody's actually requested them, but we haven't seen anything out of there. Oh yeah. He also interesting uh, intersection here. It mentions here, his manager at the time, Arthur Gorson. Now people who listened to our last Q and a episode, might remember Arthur Gorson's name coming up in relation to Phil Oaks because he was he was he was a student activist who then got hired by Phil Oaks to be his manager and I guess we brought him up in the context of he was the producer that was yeah. sort of trying to make a documentary about what silent was it called children. yeah the like, silent like children right silent children about yeah. like the child sex trafficking industry which is which some which somehow got wrapped up 
in the Chris Cornell and Chester yeah, Bennington. Yeah, it became like a deaths. meme that they were all producing it, and so exactly. Actually, and he, to him involved, you know, yeah, so. and he he gave a he gave interview or you know he was interviewed by like the L.A. Times or whatever, and he said that I guess it was. I still don't know like who first made this claim and like how did it get out there in the first place? But he basically came out and said, no, I was trying to make this documentary uh, with this other woman who kind of had music industry connections. And this guy actually had a pretty storied career. Like he produced a lot of big music videos and stuff in the eighties and nineties. And he represented Phil, Phil Oaks and, and stuff. But he said, no, like we never had any involvement with, Chester Bennington or Chris Cornell like they never we yeah. never interviewed them they weren't going to like fund the documentary or anything like that so I guess that's like debunked but it is interesting that that guy was Phil yeah. Oaks's As we said manager in the Q&A, if there were like you know if uh Chris Cornell were like taken out uh for like any kind of like child trafficking related reason it probably had more to do with like his child tra- his child trafficking foundation that like he established yeah. in like 2012 or something but yeah yeah, um, yeah. i but mean that guy uh, possibly yeah, saw a lot you know maybe he like yeah uh witnessed like things uh in his like you know management of i mean he wasn't like his first manager as we mentioned albert grossman was like more connected i think or like more you know he handled like some more uh prominent people or people who eventually became stars like dylan but i don't know yeah uh, i mean maybe Janis Morrison really too. had anyone that famous attached to him even though he no i think phil oaks was kind of like the biggest name that he had so yeah. it's kind of interesting i guess at one point he had been going to peru and phil oaks at one point i think wanted to have a huge like benefit concert in peru but i don't know if it ever i don't yeah. think it ever came together gorson had met with the con- with peru's minister of culture and they had agreed to time the concert to coincide with the birth date of Tupac Amaru, the 18th century Inca descendant who had led an uprising against Spanish rule. According to the plan, the Peruvian government would provide two DC-10s to transport the musicians and crew to the concert site. The government's intellectual committee would underwrite most of the costs of the concert. Arthur was especially enthusiastic about the prospects of holding the concert in the mountains and playing before the country's native people. And, huh, so it's like he was going to do Firefest in, like, Peru interesting yeah but like for the for the local indians not not make it a big jet set thing yeah. you know they didn't want to have rich kids fly in and all this stuff 1973 was there like a right-wing military dictatorship in peru in 1973 or maybe they haven't been i don't they, know. they were definitely subject to like multiple coups um throughout that period um uh, the revolutionary government of the armed forces of peru was a military dictatorship that ruled peru from 1968 to 1980 after a successful coup d'etat by the armed forces of peru juan huh, velasco okay. alvarado maybe you've heard of him but uh you know apparently they were a left-wing dictatorship oh interesting oh and then maybe they were thrown out yeah they were thrown out in 1975 so a little bit after that Okay, so the uh, the Klaus Barbie gang got them. Or Alvarado or was thrown out by his own prime minister. So it still was the revolutionary government of the armed forces, but... Cool. Well, okay. So, so I mean, they were... Yeah, I guess the, Arthur was a real dealmaker who got all these things uh, kind of set up. But then Gorson was shocked when he came back to the U.S., fired up about the project, and prepared to launch an all-out effort with Phil Oaks 
only to be greeted by a drunken and unruly John Train, who was more interested in filling his head with his crazy ideas for barricade than in settling down and working out the finer points of the concert in Peru. The more Train drank and rambled on about his plans, the more convinced Arthur became that he had to be excluded from the work on the concerts. Um, Oh, yeah, and then there was a bloodless coup in Peru that August, uh, which unseated the Velasco government and replaced it with a right-wing militarist regime, so now they could not have a concert there anymore. (laughs) So, yeah, he was showing up at folk clubs with a claw hammer tucked into his belt. Uh, Yeah, Uh, was that one of his, like, weird array of weapons? Like, what other weapons did he constantly have? Well, yeah, he had, like, he, he had, like, weird, like, yeah, like hammer claws, like uh, <laughs> like the brass knuckles. So uh, there was one show where I guess he was promoting Sammy Walker uh, at this club, and then he was invited on stage to sing with Sis Cunningham to sing a song for Patty. After taking the stage, Train launched into an extended, incoherent introduction of the song, during which he yammered on about Patty Hearst, Che Guevara, and CIA director William Colby, while Sammy Walker and Sis Cunningham stood by, looking embarrassed. I put out a contract on Colby for $100,000, Train declared. I told Colby he's got a half year to get out or he's dead. They can kill me, but he's dead. He's a dead man now. Unless he quits, commits suicide, gets a convenient disease, or resigns. In the meantime, you will now hear the best song written in the 70s about Patty Hearst, a girl I don't particularly like, but for some reason he likes her. So we'll hear the song. Oh, it's like a song for Patty. It was about Patty Hearst. Um, Train's monologue had people shaking their heads. Phil Oakes had always laced his performances with political commentary, but his stage patter had been sharp and witty. The man now on stage droning on in a stream of consciousness style that defied logic or understanding was pitiful. Sammy Walker displayed remarkable patience while enduring Train's embarrassing performance. Oof, yeah. So I, that's interesting. He wants to like kill Bill Colby. It was probably around the time he was there was like the church committee and stuff in '75. Mm, yeah. And then who who replaced Colby after the uh, what was it like the Halloween massacre that that year? Uh, he got George H. W. Bush as CIA director. Right. Isn't that interesting? Mm. So. Yes. I guess he he really liked playing Johnny Cash covers like at this point, which I guess people were mad. Yeah, he smashed he played, uh, Sammy he Walker's guitar against the wall. Weird, yeah, he wrote a bunch of weird songs. <laughs> like again, like you know, he was obsessed with Sonny Liston. I guess yeah, possibly because you know, uh, in that final interview of his, he's like mumbling about like how basically he his theory was that like the mafia and like you know the nation they like you know the nation of Islam they like. Uh, you know, like pressured Sonny Liston to, or offered him a cut of uh, Muhammad Ali's profits to like throw the fight or something. And yeah, he wrote that weird song, the ballad of Sonny Liston is, I don't know how Sonny Liston died. Maybe he killed himself. Maybe he even tried, or maybe the boys weren't satisfied. I don't know. I'm sorry. I just don't know. Sonny, Sonny, Sonny. Why'd you have to take a dive? If you don't, then you won't stay alive. Yeah. Weird. He also, yeah, he do, does uh, mention do, the Muslims yeah. a lot in his last. Yeah, recording. he does. Yeah, and I think he's talking about like the nation of Islam. Yeah, he's you know it's all has to do with Muhammad Ali and like you know boxing, which I guess is yeah a, an obsession of his. Uh, and I guess the idea I don't know that like feeds into his general like paranoia and like the idea of them intimidating Sonny Listen, I mean, again, like you know, listen, he's just like mumbling, like he's like, and then he'll just be like trained. 
<laughs> like it, it's also like the very... tape starts slowing down in like a demonic yeah. way, so it starts just sound like this. Yeah, he end. like, like he'll just really go uh, creepy. Yeah, he'll just mutter for a long period of time, and then just like rising out of like the mire of nonsense, you'll just hear like the word train, <laughs> <laughs> like just like. Or like um, ten seconds, of, he'll just suddenly break into a song. Like he clearly has a guitar in his lap, and like yeah. he just breaks into a song for like fifteen seconds, and then just stops and continues. Yeah, like exactly. Mid-sentence, what he was saying. That's what I it's, think the ballad of Sonny Liston is part of. Yeah, he also wrote a, a ballad he, of John Train, right? Uh, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, there, there's also there's a weird episode that happened around this time in the Train period where he was really trying to buy a bar in downtown Manhattan and right, open it. Yeah. And some people were saying like, uh, like Arthur, uh, was like, uh, it seemed like a good idea, but his behavior just kept undermining it. But the interesting thing is he was able to buy a bar. He was, he looked into a bar in broom street in Soho. And as he envisioned it, the tavern would be renamed Che and would be every bit as revolutionary as its namesake society's outlaws could gather in the bar and play a jukebox full of Frank Sinatra and Tony Bennett records or on selected nights, listen to live music played on the tavern's tiny stage. It was the kind of watering hole that train wanted to frequent himself. Unfortunately for train, Michael Oakes, his brother <clears throat> was opposed to the idea and he was reluctant to authorize the release of money from Phil's accounts. But it, I, that's bizarre that in the I mean, midst of his train it. phase, he wrote like this weird article, like our like note, I guess. Uh, he actually did open the bar called Che, but it was a disaster, apparently. He, I don't know if he opened it, but he wrote this weird little thing that, like, yeah, he like he like scrawled. It's like an unpublished thing where it says uh, he wrote this: a drunken Phil Ox smashed five windows of a bar called Che. Oh yeah. He had bought eighty percent of the bar, but during negotiations had been thrown out repeatedly by his partner Robert Bonick. Bonick signed a letter of intent until September 15th. If he receives $32,000, Phil Oaks is the official owner pending SLA approval. Oaks was so drunk earlier in the evening that he threatened several lady customers when they complained the jukebox was too loud. His own bouncer then decided to lock him out. It was a monumental battle. Before Oaks could climb through the broken glass, he was halted by four police cars. They took him into custody, but after hearing the full story, they released him without charges. Yeah, a weird third-person, like, news article about himself. Very strange. Yeah. And he still refers to himself as Phil Oaks, even though Phil Oaks is dead. It's yeah. It's, like, very bizarre. And so, yeah, but, they did open yeah. that bar, but then I guess he got kind of run out of it quickly uh, because he yeah. kept getting into fights and breaking things. I want to read this. Uh, before we discuss Train more, perhaps, I want to read this ballad of John Train. Um Okay. Yeah, uh, maybe there's a recording of it. I think there probably is. Um, but yeah, he writes, uh, Phil Oaks checked into the Chelsea Hotel. There was blood on his clothes and they were dirty. I could see by his face he was not feeling well. He'd been to one too many parties. He walked in the lobby, a picture of doom. It was plain to see he'd been a drinking. I had to follow him up to his room to find out what he was thinking. Train, train, train from the outlaw in his brain. But he's still the same refrain. He walked in his room and he fell on the floor, hanging in his hangover. Now the act from the stage he plays in the street, hiding out pile, handing out piles of money. His audience now is the bums that he meets. Is he a phony or funny? Uh, April 21st, uh, 1975. April 21st? Apparently. Huh. So that's before the summer solstice, when he was killed at the Chelsea Hotel. 
we might have yeah, to do a sus Chelsea Hotel episode one day because yeah. like didn't Sid and Nancy die in the Chelsea Hotel and didn't I don't know Leonard Cohen who m- might have been MK at McGill uh, had a song yeah there's a lot of history there for sure like weird yeah weird shit happening and uh, he had a weird episode during this this year where he really wanted to get Colonel Harlan Sanders to be his manager like Colonel Sanders <laughs> from KFC to sign a deal with his, I guess Barricade Inc. was like his new company that he was launching. And he was like hustling the parent company of KFC to back <laughs> him. They actually were having conversations, but like he was kind of doing like, I don't know, some like Theranos grifting. And he said that he had a huge like warehouse in New York, but like, or he owned a huge warehouse, but he actually didn't at all. So he tried to buy a building in Tribeca and almost did it. But then people were like, you don't have the money to do this. Uh, And then somebody, somebody challenged him and he's like, he's like, what do you mean? I can buy and sell you. And I said, all right, buy me then. He said, I'll give you a million dollars. And he wrote him a check for a million (laughs) dollars. He was so grandiose when he got into that John train mode. Um, wow. So, okay. So he filmed like when the, the Hube line, I guess that's KFC's company. When the rep came to New York to meet him, he, d- he decided to turn the visit into another major event right into filming it for posterity. And so he like, he had like a reporter and a photographer there and it was a huge farce. And he had hoped to give the impression that he had by bribing a custodian into letting him walk the Hube line representative through the warehouse the plan might have worked if Train had shown up with money, but he was nearly broke and had nowhere near the $50 the custodian demanded as insurance money. After trying unsuccessfully to panhandle the money, Train came up with another, with another plan. A group of young men were playing basketball across the street from the warehouse, and Train decided to approach them with the idea of playing a pickup game for $50. One can only imagine what passed through the representative's mind when he arrived at the warehouse and met John Train, obviously drunk, dressed with no socks and standing with his shirt tail hanging out, walking around the area and trying ineffectively to pull the whole thing together. Filmmaker Francois de Menil and his crew filmed the festivities and People Magazine tried to make sense of what was turning into a pointless assignment. Train hires the ghost of Oaks to to destroy destroy Ali in one verse and one chorus. And here it is. That's all it needs. Uh, with his family listening. 
as manager. I mean, the, with the Muslims there, with the, which train can arrange. I mean, you know, I'll, I'll be there. I'd be the only white man allowed in that kind of scene. So John Train is doing all this crazy shit. One of his friends, Larry Sloman, said at the time that uh, Phil Oakes was living at the Chelsea Hotel the entire time he was going through his John Train phase. So mm-hmm. I don't know if that place is haunted or whatever, <laughs> but it probably couldn't have helped. And uh, Sloman said... Well, it wasn't a hotel room that it was murdered, right? You know? It, I, I think it was maybe at his sister's house in Far Rockaway where he hanged himself. Oh, well, I mean, like, by John Train, not like his Oh, yeah, yeah, no, he, he said he was murdered in the Chelsea Hotel by John Train. Yeah, right. But he was also living there the entire time. Right. Um, and so Sloman said he'd come downtown. We would always hang out at Prince Street. It was like another home for him because it was his old apartment. We always welcomed him there. It was such a schizophrenic thing. When he was John Train, he was the most arrogant, out-there maniac you could imagine. Then, when he was feeling depressed, he was this meek, gentle little lamb and shy. He didn't want to say anything. So he tried, Sloman tried to convince him to write songs. He kept saying he couldn't. What am I going to write about, he'd say. So I said, why don't you write about what you're going through? One day I asked him if he had written any songs, and he said, actually, I've been trying to write some about myself, like you said. Let me hear them, I said, and he picked up a guitar and started playing. The songs were amazing all about John Train and Phil Oaks and this whole mishmash identity that he had, all this kind of confused, schizophrenic thing that he was living through. They were unbelievable fragments of what could have been an amazing Phil Oaks album. His voice was not beautiful, but the melodies were gorgeous. It was a brilliant attempt to chronicle what this character had been going through. The lyrics of the songs were the startling confessions of a man who had disappeared down the rabbit hole of his own imagination. So these are some song lyrics from that era. John stands for Kennedy, Butler stands for Yates, Train stands for hobos at the Mist Silver Gates. They won't understand what I've done. They've even taken away my gun. I must be <laughs> public enemy number one. Sloman taped the songs that Train sang in the Prince Street apartment that day, and in time, copies of the tape began to circulate around Greenwich Village. People hearing the songs were struck by the raw honesty of the music. Train held nothing in reserve, as was apparent in his Ballad of John Train, a revealing number that indicated Train's knowledge of just how far he had fallen. Phil Oakes checked in at the Chelsea Hotel. There was blood on his clothes. They were dirty. I could see by his face he was not feeling well. He, Oh, yeah, I think he'd been to one too many parties. He walked yeah, in the exactly. lobby, a picture of Drew. I think you read this earlier. Yeah, exactly. yeah train, 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 from the outlaw in his brain. Train. Yeah. But is he still the same refrain? Is he a phony or funny? Uh, Train's self-perception as highly romanticized outlaw came through in most of the songs. Had they ever been formally issued on record, the new numbers would have stood as a compelling coda to rehearsals for retirement. If in rehearsals, Phil Oakes had allowed his audience the opportunity to witness his despair and spiritual death, John Train had taken him one step further. The newly written songs reflected his season in hell, from which there was no possible return. So, yeah, so then uh, it was around this time his behavior got worse and worse. Apparently he was talking to lots of people about committing suicide. Uh, His brother tried to check him into a, tried to convince him to get checked into a mental hospital, but I think he refused. Oh, interesting. Okay. So he had, he had an encounter with Ramsey Clark as, as John train. Hmm. Okay. Um, 
so the police were like trying to control him because he kept getting arrested. I guess they detained him and said he has to pay his bill and he can leave. But Train was hearing none of it. When he persisted and was nearly arrested, Train shouted for his lawyer, Ramsey Clark. The police called Clark at home, and the former attorney general told them that he would pay the bill. Train was released, but his, uh, I guess he was using a limousine service and got banned from it. Uh, Ramsey Clark cared a great deal about Phil Oaks, and like many of his friends, he was stumped over what he could do to help this John Train character who had an uncanny knack for getting into trouble. I saw quite a bit of him, said Clark. There was one period, maybe three or four Sundays in a row, that he came by every Sunday morning. He was getting to be in worse shape, and I finally got a fellow named Kenny Jackson to work with him. I thought Kenny had all the skills that were needed. He was an ex-con who'd been through the drug and alcohol thing, and he'd been a founder of the Fortune Society. I don't know what that is. He'd been there. He'd seen problems with powerful men, and he empathized with them. Kenny had an office on Hudson Street, and I asked Phil to come up and meet us. When he came over, he was carrying a long-handled spade, and I left him in Kenny's care. I was gone for a protracted period of time. I was moving around all the time. And when I came back, Kenny told me, well, he got away. He really cared about Phil, and he was a master of working with people, but he couldn't keep up with him. Huh. So that that's interesting, so, because he didn't really ever get a lot of psychiatric help. Mm-hmm. Like, he never went to a hospital. What is the Fortune Society? And why was he experienced never with, heard like... Of it helping powerful men oh building people not prisons okay so it, this is like a uh, uh supporting successful re-entry from incarceration and promote alternatives to incarceration okay so it sounds founded in 1967 i guess it's kind of a it's a new york city based nonprofit that basically helps convi- convicts reintegrate into society i suppose and ramsey clark i guess was a a fan of it. Yeah, he kept getting kicked out of places for like trashing everywhere. I mean, you kind of get the idea. Yeah. <laughs> that uh yeah, that he he basically he was he was just super paranoid, acting like a total god. He was going into goblin mode basically. Like he was just like absolutely out of control. And apparently all he could talk about was how the FBI was hunting him. He went to see Jerry Rubin, who was able to persuade Train to check into Gracie Square Hospital for psychiatric treatment. His stay, however, was brief. After being admitted and receiving a thorough checkup, Train reported to what was supposed to be a group. He reported to what was supposed to be a group therapy session. The meeting, for reasons unknown to Train, was being conducted in Spanish, and he left shortly after it began, telling the moderator he needed to use the bathroom. Wearing only a gown, Train left the hospital and walked to Arthur Gorson's apartment, where he borrowed a fresh change of clothing. So then I believe he ended up, I think he ended up at his sister's place and then he hanged himself. Yeah, he was carrying a, a samurai sword around for a little uh, while. Interesting. I, I think yeah, maybe one in of Los his Ange- other he, weapons. Yeah, he was sleeping uh, on a lawn in Beverly Hills and got arrested. He was just really, yeah, it's pretty, pretty sad. Everyone was trying to manage him, but it was just like kind of impossible to do. And it's interesting. I'm reading through. I'm just flipping through the these pages right now. On Santa Monica Boulevard. But should we? Uh, yeah, like I think we might have to jump the issue of like you know uh, the 
the elephant actual in the room. John Train who did exist. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, of first the... of all, that's that's yeah. part one. Is that okay? So he dies. Okay, and basically it's very sad. There's a big benefit concert. Ramsey Clark speaks, and everyone's <laughs> like, "Oh, how tragic!" The documentary is just like like they chalk it up to like basically that because his father had manic depression, it quote runs in the family. So he was like. Like the combination of like his chemical imbalance and the sad events of the '60s drove him to like madness and blah blah blah. And there's kind of like it's just a sad, you know, he's a sad folk martyr. End of story. But you know, we pointed out that in the biography, it claimed that John Train was like a combination of all these like cowboy stars. Yeah, like and it William was John Yates. Wayne and William Butler Yates, but but, but the, the shortest of Google searches will throw up a different source. It could have been source. William Butler Wayne or something, you know. It could have like, been all kinds of yeah, things. Yeah, like actually combining the two names if that were the case. Like it doesn't really seem like where does Train come from? But yeah, he was a contemporary with an incredible sus lord whose name was John Train. Um, exactly. Who was a little yeah, older than he's still him. alive. He's still alive. He's probably ninety, like five or ninety-six years old. Yeah. But if you, I mean, if you Google John Train, the first thing that pops up is not Phil anything about Phil Oaks. It's about the real John Train, who was an investment advisor for many, many years, but really is a whole lot more than that. Basically, he he is, I think, you know, what we would call around here like a fire wasp, in that uh, he is. I believe he he's he's from like an old New England, like Northeastern original family. He went to Groton. He went to Harvard, where he was the head of the Harvard Lampoon and the Signet Society. Uh, In 1953, he co-founded, became the first managing editor of the Paris Review, which, you know, if you get into the whole cultural Cold War thing, was basically kind of like founded by the CIA as like a a cultural weapon. He was like like basically CIA. And he was, he was basically CIA. Like it's almost an understatement to say he was basically CIA because he was in the army. He worked on wall street and then he was, uh, he found an investment advisory firm, but then in terms of his, uh, I just see here in terms of his philanthropy in the train foundation, uh, yeah, which he, awards the Civil the Courage Prize. Of the train Foundation. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, he train. awards the Civil Courage Prize for steadfast resistance to evil at great personal risk. The prize was inspired by the career of Alexander Solzhenitsyn, with whom Train once worked closely. <laughs> Asked whether he would prefer to receive the prize or have it named after him or be a judge, Solzhenitsyn chose the last, which he did to the end of his life. Um, so, yeah, he's. He's basically he's a member of the Council on Foreign Relations and uh, is a member of the British Order of St. John. In 1980, he helped to establish the Afghanistan Relief Committee to provide medicine and food to the victims of the Soviet invasion, serving first as its treasurer and later as president. Uh, Translation for that. uh, He was involved in Iran-Contra and supported the Mujahideen. (laughs) in afghanistan in the 1980s yeah like there's there's all sorts of sus things around the real john train like he for one like he started another another thing that he founded was the paul uh klebnikov fund um because his That's son-in-law right. paul klebnikov was assassinated in, in Russia. 2004, he yeah, was an investigative in journalist yeah because yes, he was investigating um, the russian mafia that's the you know idea um yeah. And yeah. yeah, he was like killed by Chechen separatists, allegedly quite murky. I haven't like looked Very into murky. it to establish whether that's the case. But yeah, it's weird. He uh, set up this like, 
you know, weird fund that basically, like, you know, establishes, like, CIA assets uh, from Russia. He basically did. In fact, there's so many connections. Um, yeah. Also, yes, to be specific, he's a descendant of an old New England family, and, it w- and his cousin was late U.S. Senator Claiborne Pell, the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and he's also a cousin of Russell E. Train, the head of the EPA under Richard Nixon, and a founding trustee and former chairman of the World Wildlife Fund. John Train's siblings include ambassadors, military officers, and other officials. Just his siblings include ambassadors, military officers, and other officials. So he's, yeah, he was like a heavy hitter, but then... Yes, he basically like... what. Yeah, it's not it's hard to overstate like his role in like funding the American, uh, you know, effort against. Yeah. In in Afghanistan in particular. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. uh, definitely. You found a WAPO article about him. Oh, yeah. It was like weird. Yeah, it was a book review. It's basically a book review uh, just about like a book about how evil the Soviets are. Um, But, uh, you know, he. Uh, yeah, his byline reads, John Train, a New York investment counselor, is the author of The Money Masters, Preserving Capital and Making It Grow. So these are apparently some books he's written. The Money Masters, Preserving Capital and Making It Grow. Not a subtitle. These Making are like separate books. Preserving Capital. So that was basically his main interest, I think, is summed up in the title of that book. But yeah, This, this literally sounds like a liberal blue check, like writing about about Putler, his Waffle yeah, article from 1984. Frothing. It's all about like how the Ain't Soviets are new. Nazis. Ain't yeah. nothing fucking new. Okay, just a brief sample here. Um, anyway, here we are again, it, it seems, although on an enormous scale. Disinformation, primarily covert or black propaganda, notably forgeries, false leaks, and planted <laughs> articles, yeah. designed to confuse and weaken an adversary. This effort in recent years has been expanded and moved up to the top echelon of the Kremlin under the name of, quote, active measures using front organizations agents of influence official publications forged official western documents and foreign media a closed society with a tradition of political dedication secrecy and conspiratorial struggle has an immense natural advantage over an open democracy interesting using the soros uh, karl popper binary uh parentheses how eager the soviets are to keep it closed is shown by their spending more to jam the voice of america than we spend to run it uh okay so you know it, i feel like again a lot of protect projection is going on here because just i don't know read between the lines um the principal organs of soviet political warfare are examined I guess in this book, notably the international and international information departments of the Central Committee of the Soviet Communist Party and Service A of the KGB's first chief directorate, the great international Soviet front groups, notably the World Peace Council and its various national affiliates, such as the U.S. Peace Council, are described, including many of the individuals involved. Also, the Soviet techniques of controlling and funding these groups. It is estimated that three billion to four billion a year is spent on the whole effort. Now, wait, that's interesting because I'm pretty sure that Ramsey Clark was like intimately involved with the World Peace Council and the U.S. Peace Council, like even during during these years. I think. Mm-hmm. Let me just let me just double check that because that would be like a bizarre irony that like the real John train thinks Ramsey Clark is like a no good commie trader, but then yeah. Phil Oaks becomes John train and Ramsey Clark is like sending him to like prison. Psych- I don't know. Just like sending him to uh, psychologists and stuff like that. And like try and being his lawyer 
and like trying to help him. Well, actually, no, it's not popping up. I swear to God, he was involved in like the Workers World Party and stuff. But anyways, yeah. I have to table uh, that. One of the yeah, one of the best ahead. things from this John Train uh, article is like yeah, just the. Uh, he says he's obviously reviewing the book. Schultz and Godson examine the historically favorite themes of Soviet overt and covert propaganda, such as urging Western military restraint when NATO was stronger than the Soviet Union and quote unquote realism and making concessions on that the Soviets are militarily ahead. Peace, quote unquote, has been a central Soviet propaganda theme since 1922. And the book describes many, <laughs> quote unquote, peace operations, including the placing of communists on the executive board of the June 12th committee, which helped move the demonstration during the U.N. special session on disarmament in 1982 to its anti-U.S. orientation. The book identifies KGB officials in the United States who participated in planning the nuclear freeze campaign and describes the U.S. Peace Council sponsors visits of the World Peace Council delegations to meet academic and other groups. You know, and he goes on like how, you know, crazy, uh, you know, seasoned like crazy people like myself know all of this. But it's funny like that. Yeah, I mean, he's kind of like indicting exactly what uh, Phil Oaks was involved in like his entire life. It's, yeah, weird. This article is from 1984, yeah. so like a while after. But yeah, I mean, I don't know. I wonder if there's anything that he like was writing or uh, published or did significantly contemporarily to like, you know, hit uh, Phil Oaks breakdown, but I don't know. Yeah. I'm not uh, I, I, exactly. I mean, because well, that, that I think, like caught his eye or something. There was the movie, the train robbers starring John Wayne that came out in 1973. Eh, eh, eh. Maybe, but okay. I think we just have to call this out here that, you know, the biographer, the 2010 documentary, Pretty much every source that has chronicled Phil Oaks's life, including the John Train period, has never even pointed to like, hey, this is a coincidence that like none of them even tell you there is this guy named John Train who's out there. And, you know, I think what are really given somebody that was for most of his life as politically astute and kind of well read as Phil Oaks what are the odds that he would like coincidentally pick the name John train and have no yeah. idea who the real John train and the was? train part was key. I mean, you know, I kind of could see the other side of it. Like, I mean, again, yeah, I'm, I'm partial to the idea that he did have some notion of the real John train. I mean, it's like more compelling, but uh, I can see like the, you know, uh, the fascination of like the idea of the train itself, you know, like blood on the tracks, you know, all this stuff. Like <laughs> he did seem to be like fixated with like the train in some way. But I mean, I guess the real John Train's name is also John Train. So it doesn't necessarily diminish. It that. is. But he. Yeah. OK, well, because there's one other thing. And that is, you know, one one of the firms that John Train ran for years, I think mm -hmm. at least since like the 50s or the early 60s, was Train Cabot and Associates. So, you know, we know the Cabot, like Henry Cabot Lodge, of course, very mm -hmm. prominent New England family. So the the three principles aside from John Train in that firm were Francis Higginson Cabot, um, and George D. O'Neill Sr., not sure who he is, and Thomas J. Devine, former CIA staff employee and co-founder of Zapata Offshore Oil Company with George H.W. Hmm. Bush. Hmm, interesting, right? So that that's pretty well-connected, right, for John Train. 
going yes. back um, mm-hmm. to maybe the guy, uh, George, George Bush's CIA business partner in the Caribbean in the early 60s. Now, wait. Okay. The last thing we have to talk about here in, in our final segment I discovered something last night that I was right. kind of shocked. Yeah. Much like how his name is pronounced o- uh, Oaks, uh, I was uh, sh- absolutely shocked uh, to find a couple of articles, just like for, for on blog websites, basically. One is on countercurrents.org, and the other one is jfkcountercoup.blogspot.com. And I'm not going to lie, when I discovered these articles... Because I think I was typing in like John Train CIA or something like that. I was typing in <laughs> random keywords. And then yeah. this article, Phil Oaks and the Crucifixion of President John F. Kennedy, came up yeah. by Edward Curtin, 2018. And then another one, Phil Oaks at Dealey Plaza. <laughs> right, yeah. By William E. Kelly Jr. And I, I saw faced. Like, yeah. I, my jaw just like broke a hole in the floor because. <laughs> I, when I started reading this shit, th- like you thought the story was bizarre enough that this guy like adopts like a split personality of like a right wing maniac and then kills himself and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. This makes it so much fucking weirder. And yeah. it really like made my head spin. So this changes kind of everything that is told about Phil, about Phil Oaks and yeah. especially about the end of his life. And it like puts you know uh it puts things in context so i'm just gonna read a little bit about this because this is also based on testimony from somebody who knew him very well and that that was the person that he linked up with at ohio state jim glover right the Mm -hmm. the other singing socialist in their original duo yeah this is based on what he had to say but uh, so, OK, so Edward Curtin uh, in Phil Oaks and the Crucifixion of President John F. Kennedy writes, it starts strong. President John Kennedy was assassinated by the U.S. National Security State led by the CIA <laughs> right, on November yeah. 22nd, 1963. Yeah, I remember that, that is a fact beyond dispute, except for those <laughs> who wish to engage in pseudo debates to deny the obvious. I prefer not to since there is nothing to debate. Okay, so, you know, then he goes on to, like, talks about Malcolm X, MLK, RFK, 9-11, and the ongoing war on terror. Today, JFK's killers have tightened their chokehold on the country and on the throats of those wishing to tell the truth. Everything is twisted in the media to serve their interests. Okay, what follows concerns one man's strange story as told by another man whose story is perhaps stranger and what their relationships with U.S. intelligence, if any, might suggest about our situation today. He quotes a Phil, a Phil Oak song. Oh, I am just a student, sir, and only want to learn. But it's hard to read through the rising smoke of the books you like to burn. So I'd like to make a promise, and I'd like to make a vow, that when I got something to say, sir, I'm going to say it now. Those are the words of folk singer Phil Oakes from his 1966 song, I'm Going to Say It Now. Oakes performed passionate protest songs in the 60s that inspired many to speak and act in opposition to the Vietnam War and many other injustices. He, not Bob Dylan, was the committed voice of the 60s radical anti-war folk music world, singing at events and rallies across the country, blah, 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 everything we talked about. And then his tragic death in 1976. He says... He's still inspired by his music, but I have come to a point where I feel compelled to broach a mysterious story involving <laughs> Oaks. <laughs> Something that when I first heard it in passing shocked me terribly. No, I thought, that can't be true. It's impossible. But the more I've researched it, the truer it seems, with emphasis on the word seems, for there is only one source to the story, a source I don't doubt but can't confirm. But either way, 
I've come to see the story as emblematic of the treachery and confusion sown by the CIA, its Operation Mockingbird, and its so-called mighty Wurlitzer that have played so many for fools through its control of the corporate mass media and the production of narratives that run like little movies too perfect to be true, but too true to be false, even when they are. Screens within screens within screens. Efforts to fuck up as many people as possible in Operation Chaos, to derange and cleave them into split personalities within and without, and to mystify as many minds as possible. I think Phil Oakes was one so mystified. I am wondering if in life and death he was used and abused by radically evil forces, whomever they may be. According to Phil's best friend from college at Ohio State, the man who taught him to play guitar, his singing partner, best man at his wedding, constant pal in their days in Greenwich Village, and lifelong friend Jim Glover, Oakes was in Dallas, Texas on November 22, 1963, standing outside the Daltex building in Dealey Plaza when JFK was driven by to be killed. Glover says Phil told him he went there as a, quote, national security observer. Okay? I had read about yeah. this on some offbeat websites, but never in biographies of Oakes or in the latest documentary about him, There But For Fortune. There seems to be an official ban on mentioning Glover's claim, even though Glover appears in the books in the documentary, has been interviewed by the authors and filmmaker, and is considered by them, as Phil's old and close friend, to be a reliable source. Jim Glover, who is one half of the well-known folk duo Jim and Gene, back in the 1960s, is now an anti-war activist in Florida, says that he has told Oakes's siblings and biographers all the details, has also reported it recently and as far back as the early 1990s to the FBI, and has put these claims out on some internet sites and openly spoken about it. These disclosures have resulted in silence from Oakes's family and biographers. There have been no efforts to refute it, and so it circulates far outside the mainstream. Since Glover speaks of it openly and in great detail, and since it is a shocking claim with serious implications, one would think it worthy of response but it is only greeted with silence. It seems perhaps like another example of what Thomas Merton called the unspeakable, the void that contradicts everything that is spoken even before the words are said. So I contacted Glover and asked him about it. He told me that Phil had told him months before the assassination that he was, quote, working for national security, something like the CIA. Then he later told him he had gone to Dallas with one of the Gambino boys as a, quote, national security observer and had been standing in Dealey Plaza outside the Daltex building where he was filmed when JFK was shot. Jim Glover has sent me photos that he discovered decades later that he says are photos of Phil in Dealey Plaza at the exact spot he mentioned and also in the movie theater where Oswald was arrested. He thinks they are very conclusive, especially because of the Dealey Plaza location, despite their blurriness. While I think they are not dispositive, they do look like oaks in a fuzzy sort of way. Uh, the first two photos, he shows the photos. They, I mean, it looks like it could be him, but we're not going to get hung up on yeah. photo. I don't know if you're looking at it, but, um, mm -hmm. you know, it's like, okay, yeah, it could be him. Um, yeah, whatever you think I of the photos. Really yeah, I think, though, if you look at the connections, uh, that's what both these authors believe, that, you know, putting the photos aside, you can make a strong case. So... Uh, whatever you think of the photos, they're one piece of a larger mystery, a tale stranger than fiction. They may or may not show Oakes, as Jim Glover is certain they do. But if Oakes's biographers trust him on other matters, why would they doubt him when he says Oakes told him he was in Dallas that day? He says they're afraid to entertain the possibility. So we might ask, if Phil Oakes was in Dallas that day, what was he doing there? 
Um, the last and picture so, where he's holding the guitar does kind of look like him. I, I mean, maybe just because he's holding a guitar, I'm like, you know. I think that is him. The, oh, the, that's the yeah. for comparison. Oh, I see. Yeah, I they yeah were exactly. Saying. All right, all right. Oh, yeah, yeah I see. Okay. I it's creepy. It's really haunting, though. The the yeah. one clip from the video where you can see Jackie and JFK's like head, and then this yeah. like, blurry. It's almost like our cover art. Yeah, on, like, true. In the pocket, it's like yeah. You definitely can't background. identify anyone in that. But no, you can, no, uh, you can't. Uh, but it's okay. So. So, you know, he reiterates that, like, the killing of JFK is not a mystery, okay? Um, you know, <laughs> right, they yes. Did it. They did it, folks, <coughs> which uh, I appreciate. So he's pointing the mystery. I'm just saying, did Bill Ox have a hand in it, or was he there? Yes. Okay. So, continuing. Uh, so, this is where the, the game starts to get thick here, and you realize that it's not, this isn't as crazy as it sounds. Phil Ox is the mystery in Glover's telling, and I'm wondering about him and Glover, what he thought he was doing getting tangled up with shadowy intelligence operatives, how that awakening of knowledge subsequently affected him, how he responded, and what place guilt and fear played in his post-1963 life and death. I'm proceeding as if Oakes went to Dallas at the naive age of 22, not to harm Kennedy, but as Glover said, he said, to investigate the threats against Kennedy that he had heard of in New York through V.T. Lee of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee and others. This is the same V.T. Lee who received a letter from Lee Harvey Oswald, who was proposing an FPCC chapter for New Orleans in May 1963, where he was performing his theatrical stunts with Ted Cruz's dad. No, mm -hmm. but for real, though. Yeah, right. Lee warned Oswald not to provoke unnecessary incidents which frighten away prospective supporters in a place so hostile to Castro. But Oswald, of course, did the opposite to establish his fake support for Castro. Glover says he also knew of the plots against Kennedy that were widely circulating in leftist circles, and afterwards felt Phil and he were being set up to be implicated in the assassination in case the official cover story fell apart since he and Glover were sympathetic to Castro in Cuba. He says their phones were tapped and they were being surveilled. At this time, Glover and his partner Gene were persuaded, against Oak's advice, to go on a Hollywood hootenanny tour of Southern College campuses, a surreal trip that made stops in Dallas and Houston and seemed clearly connected to the Kennedy assassination as strange people got off and on the multi-bus caravan <laughs> talking about Kennedy being killed. Now, this is really something. Okay. Glover says these included George and Barbara Bush and J. Edgar Hoover who were picked up by the bus at the Houston airport late in the day of November 22nd. You would uh, have to have okay. a right? Okay. Yeah. So what the fuck? Like uh, Glover says that they picked up George and Barbara Bush and J. Edgar Hoover. I, I, I mean, presumably did he see them face to face or like he heard either way, like, why would you make up something like that? That's so fucking random. Nobody even knew who Bush really was back then. Yeah. Anyways, um, you would have to have a fantastic imagination to make this stuff up. Why would he? Yet his tale is truly bizarre, revealing the intricate nature of the government conspiracy to kill Kennedy and create multiple tales of plausible deniability when others failed. He told me he doesn't know who told Phil to go to Dallas, but he's unequivocal that he did. He said, quote, I don't have all the answers. All I know is what Phil told me to keep us both as safe as possible. He told me I'll never lie to you, but there are things I can't tell you. Knowing I had a big mouth, if he told me things you were asking, I might not be alive. His purpose, as I see it, was to observe and being set up as if and being set up if Oswald lived. He could have been used as see a Castro sympathizer knew and was involved. And that would apply to me also, parentheses, learning what he did on the Hootenanny tour, and they would stop at nothing to have us both silenced permanently if Oswald or Kennedy lived because we knew too much. 
Once, he said, as an example of his big mouth, he was performing at the Gaslight in Greenwich Village and told the audience that Phil had been in Dallas as a national security observer. He thinks Oakes' manager, Al Grossman, and Bob Dylan heard it because Phil came over and said, are you trying to get me killed? Phil, he said, was a super patriot and would never have done anything to harm Kennedy. <laughs> super but was, patriot. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, okay. But was tricked into going to Dallas under the assumption that he was working with those trying to prevent the assassination by investigating the plot or trying to infiltrate it and perhaps stop it. But when Oakes returned to NYC later that day, according to Glover, he was devastated by Kennedy's assassination and at the realization that he had been used and was now compromised. That is why he cried so terribly that night and wanted to die. His youthful <laughs> innocence had died. No. Whoa. Whoa. I mean, uh, uh, it makes sense, though. Phil Oakes was a man of two minds and inclinations, not unusual for a coterie of musicians of that era who knew and associated with it each other, uh, had military intelligence, family backgrounds, and were never drafted like so many young men not in college. Like so many of these musical icons, Jim Morrison, David Crosby, Frank Zappa, Papa John Phillips, Stephen Stills, et al., as Dave McGowan chronicles in his book Weird Scenes Inside the Canyon, Ox had a military background like them. He was a conservative rebel who suddenly transformed from a conservative to a radical at Ohio State in his last year, according to Glover. He attended Staunton Military Academy with Barry Goldwater's son and John Dean of Watergate fame and was a sergeant in the ROTC at Ohio State, where at the least he was aware of military intelligence spying on radical students. He idolized John Wayne, James Dean, Marlon Brando, and the American Western film mythology of the cowboy and soldier. He loved John Kennedy. He sang powerful anti-war songs and would jokingly say to his audience that now that they had listened to his anti-government songs, he was turning them into the government. He was a drama king who loved heroes and wanted to be one. He was a left-winger who mocked liberals. He was a folk singer who loved Elvis. In short, he was a man of many contradictions, of highs and lows, hope and despair, driven to stop war and injustice and become a star in the superficial entertainment culture, etc. As he fell apart in his last years, it became easy to categorize him with the facile term manic depressive or bipolar. I think that misses the heart of the matter, as if a term explains its reality, as if his paranoia had no basis outside his mind, as if he was just nuts to think the CIA was out to get him, as he did regularly and especially after he was attacked and choked while walking along on a beach in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, when his vocal cords were ruptured and his voice permanently damaged. My guess is that he was driven by guilt and fear and that his suicide at age 35 was connected to being in Dallas on the day JFK was assassinated. I think he died that day, too, and that the next 13 years of his life were courageous attempts to quell his guilt for being gulled into going into Dallas and fear that he might be killed for doing so by singing out his rebellious songs in the face of his ghosts. He was a haunted man and produced haunting songs in response to exercises demons, including the songs The Crucifixion and That Was the President, both about John Kennedy. In his last years, he said he was John Train, not Phil Oakes, and that John Train had killed Phil Oakes in the Chelsea Hotel on the summer solstice in 1975, the solstice being a significant turning point. His biographers give various explanations for his adoption of the pseudonym, all of which I believe missed the mark. Yeah, so he says, you know, to say he took the name from John Wayne, John Ford, John Kennedy, and Yates avoids the key word, train. It's as if the word is unimportant or unspeakable, or the name John Train is a common name that crazy Phil just made up. As he was unraveling in fear and trembling, I believe he was referring to a real John Train, a CIA operative, when he metaphorically said, you know, basically on the first day of 1975, Phil Oakes was murdered in the Chelsea Hotel, 
for the good of society's public and secret. He needed to be uh, gotten rid of. Could it be just a coincidence that there was a real John Drain who from the early 50s onward was connected to the CIA and the covert state and various activities as an asset or agent? This John Train, who was one of the founders and funders of the Paris Review, its first managing editor, who together with the CIA's Peter Matheson and George Plimpton, who was in the room when Bobby Kennedy was killed, started the magazine for the CIA under its propaganda front, the Congress for Cultural Freedom. This John Train, who ran cover corporations for the CIA and was connected to George Herbert Walker Bush through the CIA's Thomas Devine, who was involved in setting up Bush's company Zabata Offshore. This John Train, who was deeply involved in the CIA's activities in the early 80s, backing the CIA-supported Mujahideen against the Soviets in Afghanistan, it is far-fetched in the extreme to think Phil Oakes just plucked the name John Train out of thin air. But the fact that this is asserted by his biographers makes sense when we realize that Jim Glover's claims are ignored by Oakes' family, his biographers, and the makers of the documentary about him. That there is a real CIA-affiliated John Train, and that Glover insists Phil told him he was in Dallas in 1963 seem clearly connected, but these facts are unspeakable. I think there's a little bit... In this other article on JFK counter-coup, they, they talk a little bit more about his experiences in Columbus and his early time, you know, being in ROTC and stuff, which I guess was mandatory in college, which is kind of wild to think about. In the early 60s, like, you had to be in ROTC if you went to college. They eventually, the protests kind of um, basically kind of got rid of that. Okay, so this this is a quote from... The section is called Undercover in Columbus. This author also became like befriended Jim Glover online and sent him mm. like messages and they, they talked online. So Jim Glover is like doing good, doing good uh, service here. Maybe man, I wonder if he's still alive. Actually, we should hit him up. So, yeah, the, this is when they formed the Singing Socialist. So, so Jim Glover, he sends uh, his new Facebook friend, Jim Glover, a PM, a personal message, and asked how he <laughs> met Oaks and what Oaks was doing at Dealey Plaza and how Oaks was connected to the national security state. So Jim Glover's answer is, Phil first picked up the guitar when we were in college and Steve Hall roommates at OSU in Columbus. We were both in the ROTC. I was a private ROTC Army. Phil was ROTC Air Force Sergeant. It was a military culture because ROTC was mandatory, and Phil was a sergeant in the Air Force, and I was a private army cadet. He liked to pull rank on me, and I resented it, but we had a ball anyway. At first, Phil was gung-ho. Commies were the bad guys, and he seemed like it would take a lot of work to turn him around, but I did in short order. It was kind of like I, quote, sheep-dipped him for his future mission. <laughs> huh. He bragged about his photographic memory and how at Staunton Military Academy he was friends with Barry Goldwater's son. In 74, he told me he knew John Dean there, too, when he also confessed he was working with an up-and-coming young Air Force officer. Phil got a lot of his song ideas from the newspapers and read me stories about how the mob fixed the election, about Lee Oswald defecting to Russia, and about how U-2 pilot Gary Powers should have taken his suicide pill, and on and on. He was also was mad at me for going to a demonstration to protest Werner von Braun speaking on campus. <laughs> <laughs> That, that's what I meant when I said he he, he might be uh, he wasn't always anti NASA. Um, yeah. Oh, I see. Right. Okay. Yeah. 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 So, I remember reading that. Yeah. Jim says I was prejudiced about Nazis, I guess, and Phil was pissed that one of the students who talked me into it was a Socialist Workers Party guy. It was around then he spilled the beans about a big Red Scare surveillance program on campus, and the first time I heard the term, 
was when Phil said I was fair game. Okay, so he definitely knew about it. Uh, our last quarter <laughs> at Steve weird. Hall. Uh, okay, so he, then then this happens. Our last quarter at Steve Hall, he got super radical all of a sudden. Wrote articles in defense of Castro for the Steve Hall newsletter he put out himself called The Word and made all the mimeograph copies. He also reported for the Ohio State paper The Lantern. His first song was about the Cuban invasion, the Bay of Pigs, which we would sing as the Singing Socialists. After we did a Republican bigwig house party, an angry white man came up and asked us if we were communists. Phil right, was a bit yeah. worried and wanted us to change our name to the Sundowners because it was more, <laughs> quote, euphonious. I went along. Trouble is, it took all the fun out of it for me. So they, they go on, ROTC, COINTELPRO, and Chaos. The ROTC was also, at one time, mandatory for all freshman male students at the University of Dayton, Ohio, before I, I, the author, got there, but student protests ended the practice. Many students, however, continued to voluntarily take the ROTC program, and I took classes in military history and strategy with the ROTC professors and cadets. When college students began to organize anti-Vietnam War protest demonstrations, it was the ROTC students who were recruited to infiltrate the protesters as undercover informants, and in some cases, instigators and agitators who drew students out of the crowd so they could keep track of them. Sometimes they were sent from one campus to another. This was the FBI's COINTELPRO program, which was first revealed in the early 70s. Uh, the CIA also ran a similar operation called CHAOS, but since they were not legally able to conduct operations in the continental U.S., the FBI's undercover network, as used against the Ku Klux Klan, targeted student protesters, and they were supplemented by the U.S. Army intelligence, usually Army Reserve units, whose surveillance of the civil rights demonstrations is well documented. The FBI and military's use of undercover informants and agitators is also exemplified at Kent State, where one such agitator is now believed to provoke the Army Reservists into stu shooting students, and in the case of the Camden 28, which also had an FBI informant. You know, this is all like Crazy Tom stuff that we talked about. So, mm -hmm. if Phil Oakes was a Staunton Military Academy graduate, an Air Force ROTC sergeant involved in undercover surveillance of radical college students, he certainly could have continued his association with the military intelligence network that had previously conducted surveillance of campus radicals. They talk a little bit about Columbus, which is interesting. The first thing that comes to mind with me is that's where Les Wexner is headquartered. And I've always heard a lot of grumblings about how almost like he's got this like mafia kind of power in Columbus mm. and like nobody can touch him and all that kind of shit. And you never hear in the Epstein case about Columbus. It's like always about New York, yeah. Miami, uh, you know, uh, the Virgin Islands and stuff. But they give a little background. There's actually the, kind of a sus Columbus low key. So yeah. um, I guess Ohio in general is like sus. Kind of um, sus, but, yeah. It, it, it's a liminal state. Uh, so <laughs> Yes, it is. I've actually been, it's the only big city in Ohio I've been to is Columbus. I went there for work mm -hmm. years ago. So yeah. Columbus is the Ohio state capital and the film location of a popular early 70s date movie, Goodbye Columbus, based on a Philip Roth novel first published in the Paris Review, which gives a colorful insight into the sports jock world that prevailed before the bloom of the counterculture and Vietnam War created a political divide. If the Secret Service were preparing for a presidential visit to Columbus, they would check with the protective research section to see if there are any threats to the president in that vicinity. From the files, they would learn Columbus was the home of prominent Hustler magazine pornographer Larry Flint, who also published Rebel, a glossy magazine that included articles on the JFK assassination by Mae Brussel, the housewife researcher, and yipster humorist Paul Krasner. 
uh, Flint himself became the victim of assassination attempt. The government files would also reflect that Columbus, Ohio, is also the headquarters of an obscure semi-quasi-government intelligence agency, the Defense Industrial Security Command, DISC, which deserves attention in regards to the security of such corporate entities as Texas defense contractors Bell Helicopter, General Dynamics, and Collins Radio, and the roles their employees played in the assassination drama. When Gordon Novell was sought for questioning by the New Orleans Grand Jury in 1967, he avoided the subpoena by fleeing at first to Columbus, Ohio, where the governor himself, Rhodes, refused to extradite him, and then to McLean, Virginia, near where the CIA headquarters is located. So something peculiar was going on in Columbus, as well as McLean. In summary, Phil Oakes, after graduating from an elite Virginia military academy, served as a sergeant in Air Force ROTC at OSU, where he spied on campus radicals and was encouraged to infiltrate student protest groups. He may have switched ideological sides, but appears to have maintained his association with U.S. military intelligence officers that he worked with in college. They must have took note of the fact that one of their ROTC cadets was playing guitar, writing protest songs and articles, and fermenting unrest, which was becoming something of a popular campus pastime and cultural phenomenon, one they certainly would have wanted to keep tabs on. So, yeah, I mean, right? Like, wouldn't mm-hmm. if he was still in ROTC I mean, and he starts being a singing socialist. Yeah. I mean, eventually. Is he the first Spencer like, Rapone, basically? Yeah, pretty much. Like, that, yeah, that does have, like, communism will win, will win like, yeah. West Point energy. Is that what he said? Or was it? Yeah, I guess it was communism will win, yeah. right? Yeah, written I on the hat at, like, graduation. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Yeah, so, you know, it, it talks about, yeah, it has the quote from the Dylan biographer talking about Dylan and, and Oaks knowing each other and how, like, Phil Oaks stumbled over to Dylan's table, worked up over some secret government conspiracy or another. Mm-hmm. Also, is is it weird that they all LARP like they're, like, 1930s hobos, even though they're all, like, Midwestern kids or, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah, I noticed that in the Judy Sill interview from 1972, she drops her G's. On like mm-hmm. every word, I was just thinking about going down to like. It's right, like, yeah. You grew up in Studio City, like well, why I feel are you like talking it's like cool this? Because like country music was cool, and folk, and and yeah. I think uh, I think a little bit like talking jive, like talking yeah like, in a black lingo right, was true. like cool. It was hip, dig it, like yeah, all that stuff. Okay, so here's a little more about Jim. The Jim Glover said to flesh out this this story. Phil was into the investigation of the plot before Dallas. He came over to my apartment when my wife, Jean, was gone to tell me that there was a plot to kill President Kennedy. He asked me if I knew anything and that he was going to the FPCC to find out more. Phil said he was working for the Fair Play for Cuba committee in order to find out more about the plot, and I said I would let him know if I heard anything. I kind of remember we were supposed to meet somebody in a subway station, but they never showed, so I never met the Fair Play for Cuba guys. But many years ago, I called V.T. Lee of the Veterans for Peace, and he told me, oh, yes, Phil was working with us. Before Phil went to Dallas, he said his mom told him to get a haircut, good advice, and he said he went there with one of the Gambino boys, one his age. I now believe anyone who went there to watch a report were being set up in case the Oswald All Alone thing did not pass. The next patsies would be us Castro sympathizers and then the mob or both. I know it sounds twisted, but that is why they had to stick to Oswald the lone nut, who I now believe was really working to kill Castro. Phil did not say who told him to go to Dallas, and it probably saved our lives because I would have talked. 
All my life got in trouble because I talked, so they used me for that. Phil did say he was working for National Security Domestic Division or something like the CIA, and that FBI Hoover was the bad guy. Soon after that, two men identifying themselves as FBI came over and asked me if I knew where Phil was. Of course, I thought they really knew, but I lied and didn't even tell them about the Kennedy plot to protect Phil. It was a few months after Dallas that Phil showed up at our new apartment at Leroy Street. He asked where I was, and I told him about what I saw when I was forced onto the shadow bus after an airport stop in Texas. Phil said, I told you not to go. (laughs) And I said, we were trying to find you, but nobody knew where you were. Next, he said he was in Dallas as a national security observer, a new role to me, but it made sense. About his Dallas trip, he only told me once, and that was that he was standing on the street, and when JFK was shot, he went towards the scene and saw the commotion. I don't remember him saying he was standing in the street keeping watch on Elm and Houston when the limo passed, but a few weeks ago I found him there, a bit blurry, uh, but it is in the film, the first shot. Phil did say he thought it was a paramilitary operation. I asked him if he could prove he was there, and he said he was being filmed standing by the garage door of the Daltex building. He also went over toward the crowd and saw a lady crying. Phil told me it was a paramilitary squad that did it. Soon after, I told this story during a solo set at the Gaslight, and Phil found out, and he said, are you trying to get me killed? Hmm. So after that, I was more cautious about talking, but I never was quiet. Phil told me that he was warned. He did not tell me who. He was warned that if he talked, they would say he was crazy. No. No. <laughs> no. Yeah. Train. Not, yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. So uh, th- then they they do bring up the strange kind of thing about how Bob Dylan. Uh, also, let's just throw out there, like, we, I think we mentioned before that Bob Dylan just very recently released, like, a 16-minute ballad about the JFK assassination being a conspiracy. After oh, I didn't even more, know that. Uh, yeah, uh, Murder Most Foul. Oh, I like, see. Check it out. Because it's like finally after all these years, he just walked away from politics like after JFK mm-hmm. died. And then he came back and he's like, the ritual killing the king. Like, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. He's, like he's full like King <laughs> Kill 33 pilled, like basically oh, okay, now. okay, I see. And yeah, it's like, <laughs> you know, when we talked about the lyrics, like, hush little children, like, you yeah. know, you want to understand the Beatles. There's are a coming party going on uh, behind the grassy knoel. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, what? Exactly. Uh, wow. No, okay. it's really random and weird. <laughs> yeah, um, huh, interesting. And, and so this article kind of makes a, 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 a thing <laughs> I'm just that, like, the lyrics Dylan, Dylan got Dylan's super sussed out. I can out. hear it in his voice. Anyway, sorry, keep going. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. This is when he said that quote that got him in trouble where he said, you know, I kind of feel like Lee Oswald sometimes. <laughs> like, I see a little bit of myself in him, and people got really mad. I just got to be, as I got to admit, that the man who shot President Kennedy, Lee Oswald, I don't know exactly what he thought he was doing, but I got to admit honestly that I, too, I saw some of myself in him. I don't think it could have gone that far. I don't think it could go that far. But I got to stand up and say that I saw things that he felt in me. Not to go that far and shoot, and then people started booing him. <laughs> you can boo, but booing's got nothing to do with it. <laughs> I got to tell you, man, it's the Bill of Rights. It's free speech, and you know that he just had to like leave. Um, mm-hmm. And then you know he, he kind of got the, the the good sense that he got scared off of it. And um, interesting that he wrote about that was the president in his liner notes. You know mm-hmm. that song that we kind of made fun of. Yeah, he wrote. Uh, in the liner notes, my Marxist friends can't understand why I wrote this song. That's probably one of the reasons why I'm not a Marxist. After the assassination, Fidel Castro aptly pointed out that only fools could rejoice at such a tragedy, for systems, not men, are the enemy. Okay. 
Well, yeah, I agree with Fidel, but also like, oh, you're not a Marxist. Like, why are you not a Marxist? I don't know. Yeah, maybe he thought Marxists were annoying. Uh, well, I, mean, I guess he hated them when he was not men are the enemy. Um, although, in some cases, I feel like JFK is like a, a wedge case. Like you know, but in some cases, I feel like there have been presidents who were the enemy. <laughs> I mean, not that like their assassination would improve matters. Um, yes, certainly exactly. no listeners of the show should take that message from anything that we're saying, but I guess, Oh, the Oaks was talking about this song crucifixion, which, like I said, it was his like masterpiece. Yeah. Um, and I guess the song is about the rise and fall of a hero and the public's role in creating, destroying and deifying its heroes. Crucifixion is usually interpreted as an allegory, likening the life and assassination of Kennedy to the career of Jesus. Although the song may refer to other heroes as well. In 1973, Oakes explained crucifixion to Studs Terkel. In the distant past, Oakes said, the people would sacrifice a healthy young man to the gods. Today, things were the same. The Kennedy assassination, in a way, was destroying our best in some kind of ritual. People say they really love the reformer, they love the radical, but they want to see him killed. It's a certain part of the human psyche, the dark side of the human psyche. Okay, so he sounds pretty King Kill 33 pilled, actually. Yeah. Um, okay, and then also Alice uh, Alice Skinner, I believe, his wife. Uh, this is another thing that uh, Jim answered. The Wikipedia article says when Kennedy was assassinated on November 22nd, Oakes wept. He told his wife that he thought he was going to die that night. It was the only time she ever saw Oakes cry. If his wife, Alice Skinner, saw him cry on 11-22, the day JFK was killed, she would know if he was in Dallas or not. She would know, but however, she's passed away. Jim Glover says that Oakes flew home from Dallas late that afternoon and believes that Oakes wrote the song, One Way Ticket Home, about that flight. That's why, he notes, his wife says she saw him cry, quote, that night. Oakes told Glover that on the flight home, he sat on a plane with a British photographer slash filmographer, possibly the same one who filmed him standing on the Houston Street sidewalk. Another thing that stood out, besides his wife saying that he cried that night, is the wiki reference to Susie Rotolo being a witness to the Oak Skinner wedding when Jim Glover served as the best man. So I guess Susie Rotolo, the, she was the girl on the cover of the Free Will and Bob Dylan album and Bob mm -hmm. Dylan's ex and an illegal visitor to Cuba. This is weird. She quite coincidentally attended a summer youth camp with Elliot and Steve Kennan, twins from Philadelphia who also became unwittingly entwined in the JFK assassination saga. Elliot Kennan is a folk guitarist who once ran the guitar workshop in Philadelphia, and his brother worked on the Philadelphia and Newport folk festivals. They lived right around the street from Rittenhouse Square, which is a oh, Kate Ashbury type hippie hangout where there was a reported Oswald sighting in the summer of 63. Yeah, he, he was seen a bunch of places. Yeah, so Steve Kinnon is uh, another interesting character. After visiting Cuba, being photographed with Castro and writing a series of articles about his Cuban adventures in the Temple University student paper, Steve Kinnon was in New York when Castro visited and, like Jim Glover and Phil Oakes, dropped out of college shortly before graduating. He then traveled around Mexico on a motorcycle and fell in with a group in Mexico that stayed at a Quaker hostel, Casa de Amigos, where Oswald was said to have visited. And an FBI report indicated that Kennan met Oswald and Mexican attorney Homo Bono told Anthony Summers that he saw Kennan give Oswald a ride to the Cuban embassy on the back of his motorcycle, both seeking visas to Cuba. Uh, Tony Summers and other researchers have questioned whether Steve Kennan is the mysterious Lycosi Three a Philadelphia college student in Mexico City who the Cuban G2 tried to recruit as an agent, but instead served as a double agent under CIA uh, 
FBI control. There's other folk singers that were in Mexico City that Phil Oaks might have been connected to. And yeah, we don't know anything about his files with Air Force Intelligence or Air Force Reserves. I'm trying to find, there was one other person that was also fucking bizarre. Yeah, Dylan went on a weird road trip that ended up went through Dallas and New Orleans. Yeah, Dylan was associating with like some weird people like Albert Marr, like Bill Marr, another Castro activist from Texas who had been to Cuba. He was hanging out in September 1963 with Susie Rotolo. Yeah, Marr, a Harvard Square radical visiting Cuba in 1963, traveled in 1964 on some Dylan concert tours out of his own romantic radicalism and admiration for the singer. Marr was the son of John F. Big John Marr, a, a millionaire Houston industrialist. The son's radicalization began at 15 when he read Castro, then accelerated in 1961 after the Bay of Pigs. In early 1964, Dylan hung out with Marr sporadically, and, uh, and then Susie and Marr ended up like a long romantic relationship. And, oh, here's the, here's the connection there. According to Winsip Custer, he said, so like a similar personality, Albert Lassiter Marr, who like C. Wright Mills, was the descendant of a prominent Texas trailblazer and rancher. According to Custer, Marr's father, John F. Marr, was shown in the 1979 SEC report of Zapata Corporation to own 5.9% of the common stock and was connected to all these different like Houston industrialists and like political people. But basically, okay, so he was a part owner the son of a part owner of Zapata Offshore Oil, like befriended Bob Dylan around the same this like same time of the mm-hmm. JFK assassination was happening. Just fucking weird. Then there was another guy named uh, Sean Phillips, yeah. who was a Fort Worth, Texas folk singer of that era. Wrote a song called For JFK, RFK, and MLK, and also covered Phil Oakes' song I'm Tired, which according to Jim Glover was never officially released. So Glover contacted Sean Phillips via Facebook and asked him how he got the song. And Phillips replied that Phil, quote, taught me the song one night after we had made the rounds at the cafes for basket money. We were both staying at a mutual friend's apartment. Needless to say, we were both a tad wired from the evening. You know, one of those all-nighters. But get this. It turns out that David Atlee Phillips was Sean's uncle. (laughs) Brother to Sean's father, James Atlee Phillips. So basically, like, Phil Oaks is also friends with David Atlee Phillips's nephew, who was also a, like, lefty folk singer in the early 60s. That is odd. Uh, I don't know. He went into a thing, and uh, <laughs> he went insane. Yeah, he... D- oh, I forgot to... We forgot to say that, like, in 1975, close to his death, he threw a The War Is Over rally. Like you said, wow. he was obsessed with that. And, yeah. Uh, but the war really was over at that point. And a lot of people who like who knew him were like, oh, he had nothing to live for anymore after the war was over. Like he had sort of like his driving purpose to like fight the war had ended or something. But it sounds like so much crazier shit was going on with him. Yeah, like, definitely. you know, and like, why it's, was he why was he writing down diary entries about like U.S. biological warfare research? Yes. You know, like shelf is toxin, Fort Dietrich, Cobra Venom, Chantilly Racetrack, Hollow yeah. Silver Dollars, New York Cornell Hospital. Hollow Silver Dollars is weird too. Yeah, like what, what? is a hollow uh, silver dollar? Maybe they were gonna yeah. put like some kind of chemical in it. I don't know. How about how about this? How about this shit right here? In his book, Family of Secrets, Russ Baker details how in New York in late April 1963, Lee Harvey Oswald's best friend, George DeMorenschilt, met with Thomas Devine as CIA operative codenamed W 
wubriney slash one at the offices of John Train, whose investment banking firm oversaw CIA proprietary companies. When Devine ostensibly retired from the CIA in 53, he formed the Zapata Oil Company with George H.W. Bush, and when they sold it, Bush went into politics, while Devine joined the investment firm of Train, Cabot, and Associates, whose primary partner was John Train. Train is described by Russ Baker as a longtime enthusiast of foreign intrigues who worked for three presidents. So yeah, I think he worked for I think he worked for Reagan, H.W., and Clinton. Hmm. Interesting, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, so there was a close relationship between George H.W. Bush's business partner, who was former CIA staff employee, um, Thomas Devine, and George DeMorenschild, Lee Harvey Oswald's best friend, who was like a white Russian ex-Nazi spy. Well, not really ex, but Russ Baker writes that there was a memo from the CIA uh, that that described Thomas Devine's role in a CIA project called W.U. Briney. Uh, Devine was a cleared and witting contact in the investment banking firm, which houses and manages the proprietary corporation Wusaline, in all caps. Briney was actually a Haiti-based corporation engaged by a corporation codenamed Saline that was wholly owned by the CIA. Saline, like many CIA proprietaries, was in turn operating inside a, quote, legitimate corporation whose employees were generally unaware of the spies in their midst, kind of like BCCI or something. Uh, In this case, the cover corporation was run by investment banker John Train, who backed the Afghan rebels during the Reagan-Bush years. Train was enormously well-connected and received appointments from President Reagan, Bush Sr., and even Bill Clinton. Uh, There's some other random little factoids here. An article by Richard Cummings asserts that Paris Review co-founder and editor Peter Mathieson was a CIA agent whose literary activities served as cover. Someone interested in Bigfoot, too. Oh, really? Was he? Yes, yeah. Oh, and George Plimpton, of course. Yeah, maybe we'll go into him if we ever do Bigfoot 2, because he he definitely wrote about Bigfoot. Uh, Yeah, and he was a big Paris Review-connected guy, and therefore, like, possibly had some intel links. Yeah, that's, yeah. That, that's pretty much that's pretty much all the stuff on the table. But as you can see, that is a lot to chew on um, yeah. was Phil Oaks, because that's always what I thought about Oswald. Right. And some of the other hypotheses about what he really was doing is that he was told you got to go to like your your mission is to like subvert a bunch of crazies that are going to try to kill Kennedy, not mm-hmm. knowing that he was being set up yeah. for it. But it would make sense that they would have like several layers of redundancy including yeah, maybe sense. Phil Oaks. <laughs> yeah. The unhinged yeah, right. folk singer. He was a folk singer. who. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> He'd be the next Unabomber. Yeah, basically. and I mean, like, he kind of, you know, yeah, he, I mean, he, like, it would be almost believable. Like, I mean, eventually he became someone who, like, would seem to ha- be capable of something like that for sure. You know, he was violent towards himself. He was, like, walking around carrying weapons, like, you know, so they just could have started that narrative early, I guess. Is this uh, the like the psychological breakdown of the double agent, basically, you know, having to live that double life and trying to like atone for it, but you can't reveal the truth about yourself and then eventually. I definitely you just think break he saw and... all sorts of like, you know, saw stuff that like because he had a political consciousness that he couldn't like fully compartmentalize, like, you know, even in a mundane sense, like drove him crazy. Whether it's or a combination of gang stalking and yeah like having people having like some thugs like attack him like you know yeah i mean 
Yeah, you could even say, like, the seed of, like, uh, you know, like, desiring deeply to be famous and, like, having that, you know, like, bug inside of you, like, and, but also, like, having any kind of political consciousness. That almost seems like the thing that, like, you know, came out almost out of nowhere. Like, uh, yeah, the Estabrooks thing almost does seem somewhat relevant, <laughs> like, in that that seems like what, you know, kind of emerged from like spontaneously was like the fact that he was into politics, but yeah. Who knows? Yeah. Who knows if he was subjected to anything at either the military school or in the ROTC program, we didn't really find any evidence that he was like, he kind of avoided psychiatrists and stuff. Not MK'd in the like literal sense, but, or not MK'd in the concrete sense, but definitely MK'd in the abstract sense. Uh, he could yeah. be somebody who got, I mean, to think about like that would drive you crazy, right? Yeah. Like, like the idea that you would know that like you, you were involved unwittingly in the JFK assassination and now you have this position to be like a folk singer and like, right. You know what? It, it's that, that, that's a really, t- no wonder he was taking Valium all the time, Yeah. you know, and drinking constantly. Yeah, so I, I don't know. It, it's a mystery. Um, I think uh, it it is pending further investigation, but for sure. I think we'll we'll have to leave it there for now. Yeah, but it's uh, these folksters, man. Yeah, there's some su- something sus going on in these cafes. I, I I'm feeling there gaslit. certainly is. Yeah, I feel pretty gaslit <laughs> um, right now. Um, <laughs> yeah, but until next yeah. time, dear listeners, stay vigilant. Well, let, let's go. Well, go ahead and give me all your cash. Let's let's go outside. Let's go outside and get a little food and the Commodore Hotel and whatever. Goodbye.